Gumbo Podcast. I'm James Lewis from Simply Serpents. And I'm April Justine from Designer Exotics. Each week we'll discuss what is happening in herpetoculture on social media, YouTube, and even on other podcasts. We will share our opinions and thoughts on current events, as well as the opinions of you, the listener. Make sure to check out our Facebook and Instagram for interactive polls and posts where you can tell us what you were thinking. Then listen for your name each week as we share your opinions on the podcast. So, sit back and relax. Here's the Reptile Gumbo Podcast. Welcome to episode 19 of the Reptile Gumbo Podcast. How's it going, April? It is going absolutely wonderfully fabulous. Oh, man. I am, uh, we're going to see how this goes. I was like, that's way too perky for you, isn't it, right now? (laughs) I'll get into a minute the the most recent part problem of my day, but right now, I probably won't put this podcast out till Saturday, but anyway, listening, we're recording it on Thursday, which is much earlier than usual, uh, because I'm hopefully moving into my new house starting tomorrow and all weekend, um, which that's good news. I mean, other than the fact that we should have been moving in on Monday, this past Monday, and paperwork took forever, and it will be tomorrow. Uh, so in the process of moving, we scheduled our internet to be connected at the new house next week, and they decided to shut off my internet at the current house I was in. So uh, I'm actually at my in-laws down the road. So hopefully this all works. Cross our fingers. I definitely posted on the podcast Facebook page talking shit about you. <laughs> about it. That's so, fine. you know. That's fine. I know. And then, I know. I just said the one time that I'm fully prepared is when James is held up. <laughs> oh. But I said and, why. So And then, like- and then I, I was extra late. And like I said, well, once we introduce our guest and we get into the first topic you want to discuss, I will uh, – I will then give everybody the details on why I was also extra late to the podcast. Just, uh, it, I'm just so perplexed on how that's oh, connected. So, oh, oh, it is. Okay, it, it all right. Unfo- it unfortunately is. Okay, all right. So, so speaking <laughs> of our our guest, our guest is Dr. Travis Wyman. Uh, you, I don't. That's all I can kind of introduce you. You're you are Dr. Travis Wyman. There's no like of whatever. I'm a doctor of microbiology and molecular genomics. Ooh, yeah, that's nice. a lot. That's a lot of words. <laughs> that's a lot of very long words. Just means that he he plays with microscopes and really small stuff. Yeah, kind of, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> just to really dumb just, it down. Just to super Gosh. oversimplify his job. Jeez. Uh, so yeah, I've got a lot of really cool stuff I want to talk about. Uh. In the podcast, but I know that April, you want to cover uh, the U.S. ARC stuff. We normally cover it at the end, but you want to get it at the beginning just so everybody, it's very important. Everybody does need to hear this. So, April, you have the floor. Yes. So, we got a new alert for Alabama. So, if that. you live in Alabama, this is important to you. So, I'm just going to read exactly what was posted so you guys get uh, – the details that I don't butcher when I try to uh, summarize it because Lord knows that's exactly what happens if I try that. Um, the Alabama Department of Conservation and Natural Resources has proposed a regulation to ban many species of reptiles and amphibians. The regulation states it will be illegal to possess, sell, offer for sale, import, bring, which could be breed, I'm not sure, um, release, or cause to be brought or imported into the state 
uh, any of the listed species. So the state currently bans several fish and mammal species under the ACDNR, which is what I read to you earlier, um, Administrative Code Chapter 220-2. Uh, you don't care about all that mumbo jumbo. Okay, but the proposal amends the current regulation and adds the species below to the ban list. So all species listed as injurious, I finally said it correctly, under the Lacey Act, uh, this includes the reticulated pythons, the Burmese and Indian pythons, green and yellow anacondas, northern and southern African rock pythons. So that's what's, those are the big ones that are in the Lacey's Act. It also includes 201 species of salamanders, uh, all other Lacey Act injurious species. Oops, I said it wrong there. Gosh, I'm gonna, I'll work on that. I'll, now, I'll get it one day. I'm betting that the reason it includes so many salamanders, because if it, nobody realizes that area, Alabama, Tennessee, that is like the mecca in the world for salamanders. Yeah, all of the southeast. And so I guarantee they're worried about things getting passed along. I mean, I'm not saying that any of the, like what they're trying to pass is right, but I guarantee that's where it's coming from. Probably so, um, which I, I don't think is necessarily a bad thing, but um, that's a lot though, man, that's a lot. Uh, I could not live in Alabama if this passes. Um, the second part of this is any species of non-indigenous venomous reptile, and this is where it definitely gets me, uh, which uh, has never naturally existed in the wild in Alabama, including but not limited to venomous snakes uh, of the families. Oh my gosh, I'm going <laughs> to totally mess this up. Uh, Viperidae. Elapidae. Uh, yes, that one as well. Uh, Colubridae, which is, that's mine. Yours. That's that's a problem for me. Hydrophiidae? Fiidae? How do you say I, that? Uh, that's the false water cobras. Yeah, I knew what it was, but I don't know how to say you it. You are both doing better than me. I was just nodding my head. <laughs> uh, Attracta vita vidae? I don't, I don't even know what species are included in that. I'll be straight honest with you. And I probably... <laughs> Here's the thing. Here's the thing. The people enforcing that law, if it passes, also don't know what species are in there as well. You're right, probably true. Um, but a venomous reptile that you can have is hognose snakes in the genus. Uh, genus. What? A, <laughs> wow. You have been drinking for this podcast. I promise you that's not why. I just read the G stood out and that was <laughs> the genus. Uh, heredi- oh, gosh. I can't do Latin names, though. Heredi- Heterodon? Heterodon. Yes. Heterodon. Uh, Yes, which is the hognose snakes. And then three is all the tegus. Um, And now U.S. ARC has pointed out that this is not because of um, conservation efforts and and possibly those animals getting out into the wild and producing like the Burmese pythons as in Florida. Um, This is for the protection of the public. Oh, well, Um, they just found tegus in Georgia. That's what it is. Uh, I just saw an article not that long ago where they found tegus in Georgia and people in Alabama on one of my Alabama natural pages because I used to live in Alabama were worried about them in coming to Alabama. So I guarantee that some of this is fueled from that. Oh, I'm sure. I'm I'm sure. Uh, but those are the uh, the three additions uh, that they're doing. And like I said, this isn't this doesn't have to do to harming the environment so much. It is about the endangers of public health, welfare, and safety. So this is more along the lines I'm thinking of like COVID type of stuff. Gotcha. Um, but we have until July 6th to make a comment. They give all the information that for that. And they do say that the sample messaging is coming soon. So if you live in Alabama, this is especially important. 
to uh, do the letter or phone contact through phone or email uh, the legislature for this. And they give that the email list information, the phone number, they give all that in this alert. Uh, and then soon we will have kind of like a template email to go ahead and put together. So keep your eye out for that. Like I said, if you live in Alabama, this is super important. If you don't, it's still good to go ahead and uh, send a letter or comment as well. So that is the new one that I got. Uh, that's the only update that I've seen. Uh, James, you have something to add that's related to this, but I don't know what. So here's the story. I, like I said, I had to run down to my in-laws, set up my whole podcast setup so I could do the podcast down here. I get down here, I get it set up. I get a call from my wife as she's pulling up to our house saying, why are there two wildlife and fishery uh, officers pulled up in front of my house? This is interesting. And I'm thinking, I don't know why there are, but I have an idea. It's got to have something to do with the animals inside my house. Uh, and so I get down. I'm like, look, I'm coming straight down. And there's five houses down. So I drive back down there. And uh, <laughs> they, they first, they want to know what I have. And, and, and don't get me wrong. These guys were as nice as I guess they could be. They were fine. It's not their fault they were there. They're, they're officers doing their job. But they're like, they wanted to see everything. So that's cool. I bring them into the house, even though it's boxes everywhere because we're packing to move. And I bring them into the snake room. And I know that what they're expecting to see is probably like dirty glass tanks and I have no idea what's in them. Cobras, boon vipers, um, you know, giant pythons. But they get into my room and they see all these drawers on the rack systems are all labeled. I've got everything nice and clean. Um, and they begin to ask me questions. And, um, and so I... I I start to answer questions. They ask about boa constrictors because uh, I have my boa there. And he, he looks at him and goes, how big is she? And my immediate answer was under eight foot because she is under eight foot. And if you live in Louisiana, anything over eight foot requires a license. She's not. So I was like, I'm good here. Everything I have here is legal. Uh, and so I go through like, trying to explain what are boas and what's not boas because they were very, very like, is this a boa? Is that a boa? Okay. Like, these sand boas are boas, and then they were confused on if they were boa constrictor. I'm like, no, 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 they're boas, but they're not boa constrictor. That's it's a different thing. Uh, come to find out, uh, about a year ago, at a reptile show in Lake Charles, Louisiana, I sold a diamond jungle cross adult female that I had had for years. My roommate in college got it back in 06. Uh, I ended up with it in 07, 08. Um, I didn't want her. She was she got pretty big. She was very not happy. And I had her for years and I was just feeding her and keeping her alive. So I took her to the reptile show in Lake Charles. I had a table. I was selling samboas. I was like, you know, let's go ahead and sell uh, this, this python and get rid of it. Fast forward. Apparently the person that bought it from me lives in Texas, got in trouble with the law and they found out about the snake and they came back and they found me. So what I did not know is that I knew in the state of Louisiana, there was a commercial reptile seller's license from my understanding for native wildlife and venomous and maybe like the, you know, the big, whatever, the ones that are always in the Lacey Act. Um, so I knew that existed, but I, I mean, I breed albino boa imperator. So, I mean, I'm like, I'm not and sand boas. So I don't worry about that. I know that I'm good, but I'm not. I, I looked at the list. According to the list, Morelia, specifically diamond and jungle pythons, which is the cross that I sold, is on that list, along with boa constrictor, which I guess technically they're lumping in Imperator with boa constrictor because it used to be, even though it's not now. Um, so I technically was not allowed to sell that snake without a permit. 
And so they take my driver's license. They go out to the truck to make sure I don't have any priors, this or that. And they come back and they tell me that what they were really looking for is they were hoping that this was a warnable offense. They could just warn me and go my way because they, they understood. They saw what I had. They realized I'm not some crazy person with just snakes roaming everywhere. Uh, but it's not a warnable offense. All three of the offenses that I apparently, all three of the laws that I broke are not. Um, so what they did was they, they went ahead and they wrote me a citation for one which was selling the snake was the commercial sale. There were some other ones. Apparently you have to keep records of every single snake you sell if it's on that list and some other stuff. Uh, so they wrote me the one for that, which, so now I have a citation uh, for selling a snake that I didn't even want in the first place that I was just trying to get rid of because some idiot got arrested in Texas. So what happens with the citation that you have now? It is goes it like it, something on your record. It goes to the parish for those of you not in Louisiana, a parish is the same thing as a County. Uh, it goes to the parish, the DA, parish DA will get it, and I will hear from them. I don't even know how much it's going to cost. I won't know oh until they goodness. figure that out. Um, and so I have to get a, a permit. But here's the thing. I technically only need the permit to sell boat, technically, boa constrictor, impurator, you know, Colombian boas. Uh, right now, I'll have a sand boas. I don't have anything I normally sell. Like, I didn't even breed the damn carpet python. I got it because a friend didn't want it anymore, and I was tired of feeding it large rats. Uh so, so yeah, uh, the, I, the reason it's connected is for those of you in Alabama, fight the ever loving shit out of them passing that damn law because this kind of stuff happens. I, as far as the hobby goes, did nothing wrong. I sold an adult snake to somebody. It was a legal adult snake. I mean, it's a carpet python. Why the, first off, why the hell is a carpet python? I get the list also had, you know, Burmese and Indian, uh, pythons and it had the retics and it had amethystines and it even had it even had poplin pythons which are not, not even that common like there's like seven people that have them uh that's on the list as well but then like to see diamond python and jungle python on there and to see boa constrictors on there i thought was ridiculous so again I, i'm not mad at the uh, the uh, officers they were doing their job and yes i by the letter of the law broke the law now, I didn't know it, but that's not a reason. It's not a, a true, it's whatever. But I'm just pissed off that that law exists. So now I have to get a damn $100 a year permit, but I'm not going to get it this year because I don't plan on breeding my boas this year or selling any of them. So I'll wait and get it next year. And then you'll be legal. I'm just, yeah, so that's that's my day. That's Which sucks. I was all ready for this podcast. It's like awesome. I had some awesome topics. I was excited all week for this one, really. And we, like I said, we had to move it up because we're moving and then, I haven't talked to you yet, April. We're gonna have to move up, move up next week's also, maybe, because okay. I'll be I'll be at a show next week, okay. selling legal snakes. In case anybody's listening, I can legally sell my samboas. In case somebody comes, that's the other problem I have. And this is gonna be like the uh, the paranoid. Like I don't have much of a paranoid part of my brain, but this is it. Now they fucking know who I am and what I have, and where I live. That bothers. for now. <laughs> that, well, no, they got my new address. They wanted my oh, new okay. address, so. So, yeah, that's why I was late to the podcast. But the upside also is that you were polite with them. Yes. You know, you weren't combative with them. So while they know you, they also know you as somebody who is respectful. And, you know, they know it was an honest mistake. They know you weren't trying to screw the system. Well, and so in a, a manner of speaking, you're in, the, you're in the crosshairs, but you're not really in the crosshairs. You're just on the list basically yeah and, and to their defense i could tell uh by talking to them, like they didn't want to get to the part where they had to give me a ticket 
Like they, they were very like, it got like the moments of silence and they just kind of looked away. And then finally they had to be like, but we have to write you a ticket for this because they, they went, like I said, they went to look for a warnable offense. And, it, and it's apparently not, you can't be like, Hey, don't do that again, which I think is ridiculous. It's not like I sold drugs to a kid or something, you know? So, so yeah. I honestly need to make sure that my beak snakes are okay. Because um, when you read the laws, they like call out venomous snakes. Um, but because, you know, it's the colubrid and you have the hognose and stuff and there's always exceptions. I just need to double check just to make sure that either I'm okay or I'm not okay. And I need to do something with them or whatever the case may be. Cause I, I prefer to be on, you know, the legal up and upside of things. You know what I'm saying? Me too. But here's the, like, why the fuck is jungle carpet Python on there? Like, okay. Talking about the Tegus in Alabama. They're talking about for public safety. Who is honestly in danger from one jungle carpet Python getting loose? I don't it's, think it's a people thing. I think it's more an invasive thing. It's probably the same thing for the diamonds because they are in areas that are climactically similar, which is probably a broad stretch on <laughs> both species to say they're climactically <laughs> similar, but we know how people are really good at making broad stretches. Um, in their mind, whoever passed the ordinance because they could be living there and they don't want them there as, you know, a potential invasive. So they want to be able to track them if they're being sold so that if there's suddenly a population of them, they can have the handful of people they need to be talking to rather than just targeting everybody in a shotgun blast. And what's funny is just how little the officers know about this. They're having to enforce something. And again, not their fault. They shouldn't. I mean, some people say they should know about all these species, but to ask them to honestly know about every uh, snake species we have in the hobby, hobby would be ridiculous. You know, to ask them to truly know about your beak snakes and know what they are, I think is crazy. When you're talking about someone who's just a wildlife officer, they're not a biologist. They're a wildlife officer. But, I mean, I could probably say they were a corn snake and they would have no idea. Probably. Well, and it's funny. I don't want to do that, but you know what I mean? Like, he goes, Did you sell a diamond jungle boa? I was like, Python. I was like, Yeah, I did like a year ago, and that was the one. Um, yeah, and then, and then I'm thinking, Oh shit, I have this Louisiana pine snake in here, but I made sure I was like, I got it from a breeder. I promise you, it's not illegal. Uh, Don't you need papers for that, though, to prove it? I need to get some written up, but I mean, they know, like, the state herpetologist knows my breeder. And these guys said that the state herpetologists have told them about him also. And so they know about him. I mean, he's, he's the only guy that breeds them. And honestly, you're not going to find a Louisiana pine in the wild. You're just not. I mean, there's a reason they're endangered. You can't find them. So that was my first. And then they saw the corn snakes and they want to know, what, which I don't breed corn snakes. I have like five of them and they are all pets because um, that's a native. And I knew I had to have a permit for native. But apparently I have to have one for boa constrictor. Although, look. Technically, it's not a boa constrictor. It's a boa impurator. They've changed it, but I will lose that battle if I ever try to fight that. So, <laughs> uh, so yeah, that was that was what I was doing prior to the podcast. Well, that is a legit reason for uh, you to be late, and I almost am sorry that I talk shit about you, but not really at the same time. What a bitch. Anyways, <laughs> oh, that's fine. Speaking of, speaking of talking shit, I talked to Travis earlier today, and now he's going to talk shit about us, and I'm all cool with it. <laughs> All right, Travis, let us have it. I was warned. <laughs> you know, I wasn't going to talk shit, but, you know, as, <laughs> so as I told James when I, when I looked at the whole outline for everything, I was like, man, I'm, I'm not going to be good for this because 
you know, the nature of my work, I can't have my phone in at work with me. So I barely get time to listen to podcasts and we're, we can't watch YouTube and stuff at work. So it was like, I don't know that I'm going to have anything to talk about, but then I was riding in this morning and I listened to you guys show with Jake Mm -hmm. and how you brought up the, the unintended side effects of posting things. Um, you called out Brian and I used called out loosely. You weren't like really taking him to task, but at the same time it was, you know, sort of a policing our own type of thing. Um, and it sort of hit me that it's not just YouTube and things like that. We also have to be aware of it in podcasts, which made me think about your guys episodes a little while back when you were talking about your office and how you had been handling them while you had been drinking, which to me just kind of screamed, not the smartest thing to do because hundred percent. Well, no one's ever accused April of being super smart. (laughs) Well, I mean, (laughs) you know, I've got a pair of them too, and I have handled mine in the past, but, you know, that was when I first got them and I had been told that they weren't that bad, but then I started looking into it more and more and more I could not, you know, really April's only the second documented Mm -hmm. case that I know of. Yep. And... So in two and a half years of looking and only having two people, that to me is not, you know, this isn't a dangerous thing. That's a, this is literally an unknown. And the couple of research papers that I have found, you know, basically the research shows that at least on tissue culture and stuff, it's a pretty potent venom. So it could pop real hot against people real fast. And so I have strictly taken mine as, you know, I tail them when I'm using them, you know, I've got them tailed and I've got them hooked and I'm not freehanding them. And I, you know, if I do have to use my hands on anything closer than their tail, I'm gloved because I don't want to run the risk. And so hearing you guys talking about handling them while drunk, it was kind of a, you know, this is the same situation where, it's not just the YouTube world and it's not just other people. We also have to be accountable to ourselves. And I hold myself accountable. If you go through my Instagram, I'm, I'm holding them barehanded. And I'll admit now, yeah, that probably wasn't the smartest thing. <laughs> yeah, 100%. I definitely have changed my handling, uh, if at all, at this point. Um, I barely even handle them uh, when I clean them now because they mostly hide in their hide the way I have them set up. They mostly just stay away and don't really want anything to do with me. Um, so I just go and I spot clean and do what I have to do now and don't really handle them because I, I also know like when you get stung by bees, sometimes your first reaction isn't that bad. And your second reaction, if it happens a second time can be much worse. Um, and I'm not going to say that it wasn't a bite that was not painful. It wasn't like the worst thing in the world by any means, but I was sore for a good two and a half weeks on my hand, on half of my hand. Uh, and I don't want it to potentially get worse because we have seen bites with uh, rear fang venomous that, you know, people get super swollen. And I've read probably the same article you have on the other documented bite where they had pain and achiness for about three months, I think, afterwards is what uh, I believe I, I recall reading. Um, so I definitely don't want to do that again. And even when I, when I talked about um, the intoxication and handling them at that time, I thought for a moment, I'm like, I really shouldn't say this, but you know, almost honestly, almost the same thing with Brian. It was like, but to be transparent, like that is what happened. You know what I mean? So 
what I've heard out of all that is that our podcast is amazing because it's only the second bite ever and it came out on our live stream. So we're, we're awesome. (laughs) I'm sure there's other stuff in there. Y'all, y'all said some big words. There's some other important things, but I heard our our podcast is awesome. That's what my head said. Sure my head that. took that differently um and said i'm sure we're, i'm sure we're saying the same thing it's, it's fine <laughs> honestly though to thank you travis for you know policing because i mean exactly what you said like policing with the situation last week you know i think that needs to be done all the way around and i know that was not the smartest thing for me to do i know that. yeah it's yeah you know, and <laughs> you know i when i first when I first hit James up, I was like, this, this came to me while I was driving in and it's like something we could talk about it, but at the same time, I don't want to piss you guys off because I hardly know you. <laughs> and I'm not meaning it as a, you know, April, you go to hell and you go to hell and you die. Kind of thing. It's like, <laughs> no, you know, I know, I know. And, you know, like I said, we, we all make mistakes from, you know, us, us simple people, us podcast people, all the way up to, you know, the Bryans who are, you know, they, they're putting out videos every couple of days and stuff everybody makes mistakes and as long as we can you know own behind it that we've done it and work to do better that's the important thing and yeah, you know i don't i don't know that brian has seen or heard what you said but i think if he did he would probably say you know yeah you're right i i acknowledge and i agree because that seems like the kind of guy that brian is yep. you know i've never talked to him but just from watching his stuff you know he seems to be on the same kind of level he's not the combative of no, you're wrong. I'm right. I'm going to do it my way and y'all can go to hell. Right. Yeah. And he's not like that. Well, and that <laughs> like, I know that, him personally and he's not like that at all. That whole thing. And, and I want to reiterate again, at no point did we question what happened. You know, that's a freak accident. We all understand freak accidents. Um, I, w- I would never question what happened or that. It ha- like None of that. Our only issue was that and I'm not in a perfect world. There would not be people out there that would take what happened and turn it against us. But unfortunately, we live in this really freaking messed up world right now. Um, and that's my biggest concern. And so, yeah, I, the when you talked to me, I was like, don't worry, Travis. You can say whatever you want. You're not, I can promise you, you're not going to upset me or April. So, nah. but I understand that I was a dumbass. I do. <laughs> <laughs> I do. But yeah, yeah. The law of unintended consequences. If it was just hurt people, probably nobody would care. But like you said, it's not just the hurt people who might hear it. And then, you know, then it's the, well, you know, then it's the Alabama thing or the Arkansas thing or the wherever thing, you know, yeah. mm-hmm. well, there's, there's, there's venomous colubrids. So nobody can keep colubrids because they're venomous and people do stupid things with them. It's like, no, people don't, and, and, you know, oh, sometimes ahead. people do, but it, it's, it's a sometimes thing and inevitably it's a, you know, shit, I shouldn't have done that. And that's how, that's how we all learn and should and do better in the hobby is by owning our mistakes. And that's, actually, that's how it that's should be. <laughs> part of the reason that I actually want to go out and proactively contact fish and wildlife for Tennessee, just to make sure that the stuff I do have, like if I need extra licensing or if I need extra things to keep the animals I have, or if I can't keep certain things, you know, like, I know I can keep my short tails and those are like my babies. Everything else is kind of an added plus. <laughs> so if I absolutely cannot keep it legally and there's no way for me to be able to keep it legally, then, you know, I don't want to be participating in, you know, something illegal activity, especially when it comes to the hobby and, and being because we're on a podcast and because we have some of the public view and because I'm transparent, 
with how I keep stuff I do, stuff that happens, I don't want to be a part of the problem. Yeah, and I, and I want people to understand, I 100%, what happened was definitely my fault, and I should have known the law. I should have, and I, and I, I now will go back and check it. I thought I did know the law, and I didn't. Um, I in no way say people should, don't, don't hide what you have. If you know something's illegal, don't go, oh, I'm showing sure keep it and not tell anybody because what happens is something happens and, and people find out and then it's way worse. You know, then they start passing ridiculous laws on everybody because one, one moron screwed it up. So yeah, totally go out, figure out what laws are on the books and make yourself legal. If, if there's something you can't own at all in your state, it sucks, but it's better to not own it than to ruin it for yourself and everybody else when it just accidentally gets out or someone finds out about it and then tells, I mean, cause that's the problem is, is, you know, you have these things that somebody finds out and they tell somebody and they show up at your house and see it. You're in a lot more trouble. You know? Yeah. You get a mm-hmm. ticket apparently. So Jesus apparently Christ. So. Oh, I can't believe it. That's thing. Like, <laughs> You're still like in shock. You're still I like, am. Because when I walked down, when, when, dro- when I drove down there, as soon as I got out of the truck, in my head, I'm like, I fucking know I'm not in the wrong. I haven't done shit wrong, and my collection is good. And then when they told me what I got in trouble for, I was like, wait, 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 wait. That's a thing? And it was a thing, and I should have known it. And like I said, I, I thought I knew it, and I did not. So I definitely, if, if you, people out there need to go find the actual statutes and everything in there, wildlife fisheries or state laws, whatever they're, uh, county, their city, whatever they are, don't go based off of what people tell you because, you know, everybody's played the telephone game. You know, by the time it gets to you, it's not the same thing they heard the first time. So just. And so if you don't understand something, because a lot of that is a lot of like legal jargon. Yes. If you don't understand it, ask for clarification. You know, you can contact US Ark and ask for a clarification. You can contact Fish and Wildlife and ask for clarification. And Fish and Wildlife will almost inevitably talk to you in a respectful manner when you do that. I, when I moved from Georgia up to Maryland a decade ago, the first thing I did was contact Maryland Fish and Wildlife to make sure that what I was bringing was legit. And the only thing they had a question about was my corn snake. I was about to say corn snakes. That's the big thing. Yeah. Well, and what's funny is the corn snake was apparently illegal in Georgia, which yeah. I didn't know at the time I moved to Georgia. And it was only after I got out that I found out that, you know, when I moved up here, they were like, you know, what kind of corn snake is it? And I was like, it's an albino. How long have you had it? Almost, you know, 18 years. And they were like, yeah, we don't care about that. <laughs> well, when you said you moved from Georgia, my first question was going to be, did you buy a corn snake? But you already had one because I knew I you. Had, I brought the corn snake with me from Denver when I moved out of Denver. Ah, so it looks you breaking the law. Yeah, I'm a horrible person. And I, I think honestly – a majority of people are not keeping these snakes to be like, I want to keep illegal things. I really do not think that's anyone's intent. I think it's accidental and out of ignorance of not knowing, but as James can now attest, just because you don't know, doesn't mean you're not going to get in trouble for it. Yeah. And and, and the biggest problem is a lot of these things that these laws that people are trying to, that the, the government is trying to pass because the people that are trying to pass these laws know nothing about your animals, what they're like. I mean, they're like the officers that came to my, my house. They, they don't know what a boa constrictor is. They, they count on me to explain it to them. And, and that's fine. They now know more than they knew when they got there. And I, again, I wasn't a dick to them. I was nice to them. I smiled I, because I'm definitely not going to win anything by being a jerk. Uh, you know, I, I'm a jerk on a regular basis, but not in that situation. Um, 
but the problem with all these laws passing is that once they pass in these certain places, they take nice, innocent people and turn them into criminals overnight. Um, because, and, and, and like, don't get me wrong, they do grandfather some people in with this or that. But, you know, if you own a corn snake, was it South Carolina was trying to pass it, or if they did, I don't know if they passed it or not, a law making corn snakes illegal. I mean, imagine how many people in South Carolina own a corn snake as a pet. And then they go around and make them illegal. And now you're holding on to something that you legally can't have. I love corn snakes too. It's crazy. Like, well, here's the, I don't, I don't know. I know that wild collection is not the best, but is anyone really collecting large amounts of corn snakes out of the wild? Maybe. Probably not. I mean, go to a reptile show and tell me the last time you saw a normal corn snake. Just a normal color that wasn't some sort of morph of 15 genes inside of it. You know? So, I don't know. It's if just... I didn't own one, I probably wouldn't even know what one looks like. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy. And, and so, I agree. Pay attention to US Arc. Make sure you're keeping up with that. Um, they are a great, great part of our hobby and, and very much needed. Um. And then I also thought it was interesting, just because Travis told me he had them, that y'all both have those weird-ass venomous colubrids. I know. I didn't know you had those, Travis. Yep. I got a pair of them. And I have a – so I've got um, Oxys, and I have a Restrata probably coming this week – or, well, I guess next week now since it's Thursday. That's awesome. Are you getting them captive bred, or are they imports? Uh, the Restrata will be a captive bred. The Oxys were wild-caught, but they were – no, they were captive born. I'm guessing that they were hatched from eggs from a wild caught adult. Cause I mean, they were still just little baby worms when I picked them up, which is why I was willing to get them. Cause I know that as little babies, they're not going to be as prone to infection and mm-hmm. parasitization. So I didn't have to be as crazy with the quarantine on them and have to yep. worry about drugging them and everything. But also because I could raise them completely inside of my collection from zero. So they'd be used to all of my conditions and stuff. And then that way, when I decide that I'm going to breed them, I won't be fighting an animal that's already programmed to the wild, but by starting with them as babies, they'll have grown up and be completely used to my conditions. So they should hopefully be easier to get to breed. Yeah, because I've had mine for about three years, and I'm still having trouble with getting them to breed. In fact, I didn't even try this year because I've just like I've almost like written them off. Like they're they're just going to be cool pets that I have. <laughs> Here's my question uh, to try and see what you're both doing, uh, Travis. How do you have yours set up? I have mine um, in a four foot by thirty inch by eighteen inch cage. Um, it's a fairly loose media that I keep on the drier side. It's cocoa, uh, wood pellets, and leaf litter. Um, I have them set with a hotspot of 92, which seems crazy, but these guys actually seem to do better with that. Um, and then my ambient side is upper 70s-ish. Um, lots and lots of hides for them, lots of cork bark tubes, lots of wood flats. They like to squish and hide in places. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I cycle the light a little bit, so it basically just goes from a 1311 to 1113 over the course of the year. 
Uh, I feed every other week. I do not feed them hard and heavy because they are very light-bodied snakes and they are very prone to getting obese, even with as active as they are. And even though mine are, you know, two and a half years old now, they're still, I guess they've probably got at least another year or two before they're even close to breeding size. So I have April. one that just won't grow too. I have one that's obviously an adult full size and one that I thought was a baby, but after three years is still basically the same size. So I have no idea. So how, <laughs> how, how is your setup April? So I used to keep them exactly that same way. Um, if you hear background noise, I'm sorry, my cat is being a nuisance. Um, but I used to keep them with the cocoa fiber in a cage. It was a four by uh, four by two and two high had UVB in it, uh, basically a lizard setup. And the heat, though it wasn't 92, it was about 88 is what I had it at. Um, and I kept a trio together. They all came together and I just kept them together. And nothing happened. <laughs> uh, nothing bad happened, but I also didn't get any breeding, any signs of breeding. I got nothing. So I'm like, okay, maybe if I separate them, it'll be different. So I've separated them and now I have them in a tub system because I don't have the extra cage space for them. Um, and I now, instead of the trio, I just have two, uh, they did come with pair. Well, at least one came with parasites and she had the, the tongue worm Ugh. and yeah, that's something mm. it was really disgusting and that can be transferred. Uh, I can be an intermediate host. Mammals are intermediate hosts for that. So I had to be super careful. I'm, you know, they're the last ones that I clean and all that. Um, but that I think ended up giving her an enlarged heart. Uh, and she passed away about a year ago, uh, from an enlarged heart. And you can visibly see that her body went skinny and at the heart, it was a, like very large. Um, I'd still, I have her in my freezer actually, cause I want to do like a dissection on her and see if I can see the, the parasites and stuff like that. I just haven't done it yet. Haven't got to that yet. Um, but anyway, right now they're, in a very basic setup now. And like I said, I haven't even tried to breed them again. And also they're harder to sex. So I don't even know if I have a true pair at this point. So that also could be a very problematic <laughs> issue that yeah. I have for breeding. You do tend to um, need a male and a female. Yes. Get your sheds and send them to Ben Morrill. Did, did they have the DNA to know that yet? Like, did, he has sexed my pair, okay. and he has also sexed, um, I don't know if you know Nicole Tam. Mm -mm. She's got a lot of experience with the whole family of Ramphiovis and also, you know, the Montpelier snakes and the associated ones like that. And she had a bunch tested with him, and he was able to sex them out of that too. So, Oh, sweet. I'll definitely do that then. All right, so here's Good my because if that's my issue, then yeah. <laughs> obviously I'm not going to try. You could try, it just won't work. Yeah, this is true. <laughs> so here's my here's my ignorance on the species. You know, I, I know the genus and I know the species just because I've you know as a kid I've owned all these different field guides from around the world and I've seen them in there, but I can't the life of me can't remember where they come from. So where do they come from? What kind of habitat do they have in the wild? They're kind of open savassland grana or savanna grassland, savassland grana. Cause that makes <laughs> a lot I knew what you were going for. <laughs> say, I, I dissected that. I got it. Um, I mean, basically what they are is they are the African equivalent of a Western coach whip. 
Oh, okay. That's the, that's the easiest way to think of them. So have either of y'all tried, thought about doing just like a full on hands off bioactive type setup with them with tons of cover and everything and just kind of completely basically ignoring them other than food? That's basically what I do. I mean, it's, okay. mine's not fully bioactive because I don't have, I mean, I've, I've got a couple of hen and chicks for plants in there, but like I guess it's got, um, flats of wood cork bark i've got like a stump in there that they can go over under around and through and yeah i basically just leave them you know except when i go in to feed them gotcha. and that's, that's that's all that i do for them april what are you feeding yours they're getting small mice i don't feed any bigger than that um because um, honestly the way their their mouths work i don't think they uh could even take big prey you know if i want yeah to probably not to but you can maybe try diversifying out some. So mine, mine will readily take reptilinks, but they love quail. Okay. Like I feed, I feed quail chicks and I mean, they just go crazy over those. So maybe try diversifying out some, I'm not going to say that that'll be a trigger or anything, but maybe sure. varying up their diet, there might be some trace that they're not getting from mice that they would get from other things. That's cool. I will definitely uh, try that and they're get them sexed. They're definitely one of those snakes that are, uh, and we'll kind of talk about it in a little bit, one of those snakes that you don't see in the hobby that much, but they're out there. Um, I, I always worry about the, the non-venomous colubra stuff. I, you know, I actually worry about hog nose. I've talked about it before on the show. I've, I've seen the damage from a hog nose bite, and it's not as innocent as people make it out to be. Like in, in a case where it really affects somebody, yeah, tons of folks that get bit by them and nothing happens. But man, it, it will make your arms swell up. It's definitely worse than what happened to you, April. I mean, I've seen yeah. it way worse than that. That uh, honestly, when I got bit, that was the first thing I thought of was what you told me you saw with the hog nose. I'm yeah. like, great. I was freaking out. Oh man, just big old blisters and stuff. It's gross. I think part of the reason hog nose bites can be bad is because people think it's funny to just let them sit there and chew on them because it's. Well, cute yeah and so they're really letting themselves become envenomated to a higher degree versus you know if it just caught them and they got it off as fast as possible it probably wouldn't be as bad but because oh look at my hog nose he's being so cute to chew on me which is the same thing about it happen. think about that you wouldn't do it with a cobra like you wouldn't just go oh he's so funny when he chews on me like but it's a, I think it's adorable with the little smushed faces on the hog noses, but, but and and to a lot of people's defense, I mean they're sold to them as a pet, you know, and so a lot of people don't take the fact that they're venomous serious because there's so many of them in the pet trade as harmless little pets. Yeah, well, I mean they've had two decades of people saying, oh no, it, they're not really. You're yeah, it, fanged. It's, it's not really sting. venomous. It's a bee sting, you know, and yeah, on a superficial level, it is a bee sting. It doesn't affect some people, but, yeah, but these things people. also kill some people. So. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, that's like we always said, you know, copperheads. Copperheads don't ever kill, really kill anybody until last year or the year before when the guy died of anaphylactic shock. You know, he, he was allergic to it. Um, you know, because always, people always forget about copperheads. I'm like, yeah, they're venomous, but if you're going to get bit by a venomous snake in, in Louisiana, you better hope it's that one. Uh, but then again, on you have the one case in Alabama where the guy died from anaphylactic shock from a copperhead bite because he was allergic to it, and that that can easily happen. I know it's not as venomous, but can easily happen from you know one of your beak snakes or or a, a hog nose. I mean, that's all it takes is your body, yeah, being allergic to it. It can happen with any. I mean, I was on one of the 
forums that I was on, a guy was posting, wondering what had happened to his arm after he got bit by a ribbon snake. And I was yep. like, well, they're rear fanged. And he's like, no, they're not. I was like, oh yeah, they are. And, you know, I, I spent a while talking with him about it and he was like, damn, I never knew that ribbon snakes were considered rear fanged. And well, he's like, he spent his, his, you know, his youth getting bitten by him multiple times. I'm like, well, that's really the problem is you've become sensitized to them yep. because they have bitten you so many times. And we talked about uh, ring neck snakes before ring neck snakes. I didn't realize they're venomous until a couple of years ago. Um, I didn't know hognose were venomous when I first got into the hobby. No really? idea. Cause they, they were, there were so many of them in at the Southern California shows. So we're talking um, some of the repticons and then the super shows, they have so many hognose. So I had absolutely no idea that they were venomous. Yeah, because if you go to a, a good show like the Herp shows, the venomous stuff have red tape around them and they're taped shut. And you go, yeah, mm-hmm. those those are the dangerous ones. Exactly. You, you see some kid holding a full-grown hog nose, you're not going to think, oh, man, that could bite me and cause some damage if in the right circumstance. So, anyways, I, I just thought it was interesting the two of y'all both have uh, have those snakes. And it's, it's, they're I know, it's really snake. cool. So, all right. I want to jump to our questions that I post. I like our questions this week. I mean, I like our questions almost every week. Because <laughs> you make them, James. <laughs> I, I, I do make them. She's uh, got a point. <laughs> I, you're not supposed to say that. Anyway. Like, thank you, Travis. <laughs> uh, so the first question I had was, and I'll read it word for word so I don't get it wrong, but what does the phrase reptile hobby mean to you? Because I'm going to go through these answers, and then I'm going to explain why. I, I seem to have moments of clarity while taking a shower before I go to bed. Like, when I'm in the shower, like I start to think about things and like, and that's the question came to me. This is a really good question. And so let me go over some of the answers. Uh, my friend Tracy said to me, a hobby is doing something you love. And it's more than just having a bunch of scale pets that I take care of. It's learning about them, making new friends who you might not normally meet, which is true, which is why I love reptile shows or this podcast. I mean, I, you know, I now know Travis. I would not have known Travis had it not been for podcast. Um, and so, and this was kind of like the, the same kind of theme I was getting uh, Lance Kirkman defined hobby as favorite pastime, and then you know the reptiles is the animal he loves. So the favorite pastime working with the animals he loves. Uh, Matt Lowe said becoming a mil- uh, millionaire, uh, but before that he started as a billionaire and then became a millionaire, which uh-huh. is ca- kind of how the hobby works. <laughs> That's definitely uh, how the ball python python industry goes. <laughs> um, Sean Michael said enjoying the reptiles that drive a passion in you, uh, keeping first and then breeding second. And these were all answers I kind of expected, but then I got to think about the reason I asked this question was I don't feel like the, the phrase reptile hobby fits for many of us. I feel like it's too much of a, a broad term. Like normally when you think of a hobby, it's like, oh yeah, I, I spend a little extra money on this and I, on the weekend I go and I do this. You know, I go out and I, fishing is a hobby. On the weekend I go fishing. But for many of us, reptiles are not a hobby. It's not a weekend type thing. It's, it's it's us, and I've talked before. Without reptiles, I mean, I, I'm probably fairly boring. I, I'm that is me, and I don't know what I'd be without them. You know, it's every day going in, taking care of them, and and watching them, and handling them, and talking to people about them, and doing a podcast about them, and reading five million Facebook posts about them. And to me, that feels like more than a hobby. And so I feel like the phrase reptile hobby just doesn't fit for for what we do. I feel like it's too soft. There should be more to it. Maybe, maybe culture is a little better. Um, cause it's, it's really a, it's, it's more like it's a lifestyle. It's what, you know, what we are. What are y'all thoughts? Go ahead, Travis. 
Um, I mean, I have always called it my hobby because it's, I mean, it's, it's something I do that you know, it brings me joy. It brings me peace. It, you know, it's a break from my day to help me find myself. So that's what I consider as a hobby. Now, at the same time, yeah, I can see what you're saying, James, is it's more than that because to some extent it is also my identity. I mean, I caught my first snake when I was five years old in preschool. And that one act has shaped everything that I am over the past 37 years to where I am now. You know, if I hadn't caught that one snake, I wouldn't have, you know, a green tree python that sits in my bedroom. I wouldn't have these cages and tubs and racks and everything where I keep all of these different things. You know, I wouldn't, you know, I keep a, a fair number of ball pythons and I breed them not because I'm looking to make money for them, but it's the genetics end of that. But that genetics end also ties into, you know, what I do as a job. It's, it's not necessarily a way for me to bring my work home, but that's just how my brain is geared. So I'm always thinking in genetics, so I might as well have something that I can play with genetics. But I'm not doing, you know, the ball pythons to make myself any money except maybe to help pay for my rat bill. But then I'm keeping these other things like, you know, my blackhead, my condor, my breadline, my ramphiophus and stuff. I'm keeping those because, you know, I'm not planning on making money from them. It's just it's a passion. It's a pleasure. It's what I am. And I'm a snake guy. Everybody at work knows me as the snake guy. I get people who send me text messages on the weekends like, I found this in my yard. Do I need to be worried about it? And the fact that they know to come to me for that is like, that's not your hobby at that point. That's yeah. that's part of your identity. And and think about what if – so you watch people, and for some people it is a hobby. You watch people get into it and get out of it all the time. It happens all throughout reptile keeping people get into it and then a few months later a year later it's just they don't it's not their thing and they leave but imagine if tomorrow they said all right you can no longer keep any reptiles it wouldn't be like oh tomorrow you can no longer uh you know fly model airplanes oh, okay well shit oh well i'll get it I'll, I'll be fine i'll find something else to do if tomorrow they're like you can no longer keep reptiles that's a huge blow to me as a person on many levels, I mean, obviously a huge blow financially, but a huge blow on many levels. And to me, that's why I feel like it's, it's more than a hobby. It's, it, like you said, it's, it's my identity. And, and yeah, I'm the same way. I get so many pictures of what is this? What is that? And yeah, all of us, everyone listening for the most part, this probably has been called the snake, the snake guy, or the snake woman, or, or, you know, it's what we get known as. And I'm cool with that. Well, and I think what you just said there is, you know, it's 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 a burden on you as an identity versus a burden on you financially. Like if if I, if somebody could say, you know, well, if they told me I couldn't keep snakes, I'd just be like, oh well, I guess you know, I guess I can't make money off my snakes anymore, and that's their only care. Then, you know, yeah, then maybe it is just a hobby for yeah. them. But yeah, if if you were to, if you told me that I had to give up all my snakes, that would that would pretty much just fuck my life <laughs> I know, I, quite I, frankly I, i'm not a person that really I don't, i've never really suffered from depression it's not it's not my my makeup but i would probably go through some form of depression if you emptied out my snake room and i could no longer have them what about you april 
So I've been quiet because I'm not necessarily the opposite of you, but I don't fully relate to both of you in the sense that I didn't grow up catching the animals in my backyard. I got into reptiles because of being a kid in middle school that was more of a rebel and snakes were different. And so I, I gravitated to them. I think a lot um, of people get into the hobby though for that. I don't think, I think that's a, that's a normal, I think the majority of the people in this hobby are kind of that mentality of, well, I want to be different and this does make us different. And then like I started researching them and then, you know, specifically, you know, corn snakes was the first thing I ever got into and they had all the different patterns and I, you know, all the different colors and the different genetics. And so the genetics really pulled me into that. Um, really like I am very ignorant when it comes to all the different species of reptiles that are out there. And I'll be the first to admit that like I am so tunnel vision with what I have in my collection and I understand that and I'm trying to learn, you know, more as I go through everything. Um, I did deal with depression and having my snakes helped me get through it because I know that I took the best care of them and didn't want them to go to someone else. So I know I would have to wake up every single day to take care of them. So they really helped me through that transition. I think if there was laws that got put into place that said I could not keep them anymore, I would have to find something to replace that. Um, I, I could transition out of reptiles and I've actually thought about it a couple of times, but to me, I would lose so much more than just, the ability to play with genetics because I also, you know, studied biology and genetics was a huge part of my studies for my undergrad. So being able to, like you said, Travis, play with that hands-on is, is a lot of fun for me. So it is definitely a hobby in that sense. But then you have the lifestyle where all of the people that truly care about me and don't judge me and like unconditionally love me as like a friend are reptile people. And so I would be devastated if I lost that aspect of it. And maybe that's like the woman side of me too, because I know, you know, women tend to be more, um, more empaths and, and, and more into that relationship building type of thing. Um, so maybe that's, you know, just my, my personal genetics being female. I don't know. Um, but I, I would be absolutely gutted if I lost that side of, of the hobby. That's a big deal. Also. I mean, Honestly, most of my friends that I talk to on a regular basis are, I mean, look, you and I are in a group chat with, you know, Cox and Joe. And I mean, we talk in that chat every single day. Yeah, that that's, and I would not know y'all outside of reptiles. And there's a lot of people that I've, met, I've become friends with that I probably would not have become friends with had it not been for reptiles. Even had I been around them at all, I would not have given them, you know, the chance, I guess, or, you know, but I agree. If this all ended, I'd lose. I wouldn't say lose a friend. I don't want to say I'd lose friends. People would quit being my friend because I didn't have snakes. But I would never have had the friends I had uh, without them. And I think it works out really well for us because a lot of us tend to be, uh, I don't want to say introverts. We're, we're somewhat introverted. I can be an, I can kind of be both. But it works towards a friendship because we can talk today and then we may not talk for five days, a week, two weeks, and then talk again in two weeks and we're good. Um, just pick right up from wherever we left. And I think that's also helps us we're introverts. We can be like, I'm just going to go sit in my room for a while and then come back and be like, Hey, I'm back again. I know every once in a while we get the, the text and the group messages, everyone alive and well. <laughs> okay, <Yeah>. good. <laughs> when it's like nine o'clock at night and no one has said anything in the group chat, I'm like, uh, is everybody all right today? <laughs> but 
So I just, like I said, that I just thought of the phrase reptile hobby. And I'm like, man, it just, it doesn't feel like it covers enough. I just feel like it's too simple for what this is. And for those that, yeah, you may own a ball python here or there. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not bad mouth on ball pythons right now. I'm just saying you own one whatever, and it's just kind of a, it was an impulse buy. It's like it sits in the corner, you feed it, whatever. It may just be a hobby for you. But when it takes up a huge chunk of your daily life, and mine does, not just caring for the animals, but everything reptile related. I mean, my mind thinks about what can I do. And like y'all about genetics, I love genetics. So I got really got back into Samboas because of all the different genetics. And in my mind, I think, oh, man, if I do this with that, imagine what I could get. And it's not about imagine what I could sell. I agree with you, Travis. If, you're, if your thought is, oh, man, if, they, if I couldn't keep snakes anymore, where would I get money from? Yeah, then you're probably not in for the hobby. And I'm not bad mouthing anybody who, like, that is their – they've turned it into their full-time job because it was their passion. Not those people. But the ones that go out and buy a rack full of breeder-ready ball pythons because they think they're going to be the next Justin Kabilka next week. Like those folks, yeah, it's probably a hobby, and you may not need to be in it. I mean, well, the I mean, reason not necessarily. You can be in it as a hobby. Well, no, no, I'm not own that it's a hobby. Yeah, but no, it's, there's, I get... there's definitely a differential of what is hobby and what is yeah. lifestyle identity. I don't know what the proper term would be for it, but there's and, there's a level above hobby. Yeah, and what is business? Because yes. people that are in business, their minds are very, very different than people that are in the actual hobby or lifestyle. Well, the problem is there's, two, there's a couple, kind of two different styles of business. Here. There's, there are people that are in the business with reptiles because they truly love reptiles and the business allows them to survive and maybe keep more reptiles. You know, that is great. But, I mean, you're into ball pythons. I'm sure you've seen the people that go out and they buy a whole rack full of breeder adults from somebody who was also getting out of the hobby. And in their mind was, I'm going to breed this pastel to this pastel and I'm going to make so much money. And you're like, that's not the reason to get into this. It's, it's, it's great if you're in this already and then get into the breeding. But if you get into this for the breeding, I think that's not the reason to be in it. Well, even people yeah, yeah, that are in point. business business with it, it's not necessarily because they don't have a passion for the animal and they're just money hungry, you know, oh, assholes. Yeah. That's not the case no, I've got know, friends, with most of the people. I've got friends I do reptile shows with. They own shops. They, they, they do the tour. They do the reptile expo circuit because that's their job. That's their income. But in the beginning, they do all that because they really like reptiles. And then they I found think out. That's where it starts with everyone, though. No matter what level you're at, I think that's where it, the core of it is that they love reptiles. You wouldn't, I mean, what kind of, it's reptile breeding. Like that's weird in itself. So yeah, you, like, wouldn't, you, you, you don't grow no, up being like, I'm going to be a reptile breeder. If you didn't, you know, catch the frogs in your Creek in your backyard or something like that. You know but what there I mean? Are the, well, there are those people though that jump from thing to thing thinking that's going to be the next big hit. And I mean, there are folks I've seen folks get into reptiles who are not reptile people. Uh, that they did not have a passion for it, but they saw they saw dollar signs getting into it. And as we talked about, that's not how that works. Yeah. So back in the early, early days of ball pythons, um, Morph King Reptiles. Dude was a used car salesman, saw how ball pythons were being sold, bought a shitload of high-end stuff, which at the time high-end was, you know, Mojave's and... Oh, yeah spiders bred the shit out of them simply for the money aspect 
actually sold them significantly under what they were worth, but had just the numbers to make it worthwhile for him to do it, made a whole bunch of bank. And basically, I mean, he caused, he is given a lot of damnation as being the cause of the first great ball Python collapse because of what he did. And he literally looked at this as nothing but a rapid money-making venture. He didn't give a damn about the animals and he, he came in, he hit hard and then he was gone just as fast. So they are out there. They are few and far between, but they are out there. And I think at that point that also doesn't classify as a reptile hobby. I don't think no, that's, no, definitely that's not. not a hobby. Yeah. So, so anyways, that was, that was my, my hmm, moment of the week. When I came with that idea. So let's just see how people, how they feel about that one. All right. And then my other question, which got a lot of responses uh, I know yeah. you posted on your Facebook and you got a lot too, but it was what got reptile, <laughs> what reptile or amphibian are you surprised is not more popular or abundant in the hobby? Cause there are many reptiles uh, that either were popular at one point, you know, when I really got back into them in the early two thousands, there's things that I remember seeing that I don't see now. Um, and so they're not around or there are some things you're like, man, that seems like that should be around way more. Uh, and so there's some good suggestions and some of these suggestions, I think, I think we can probably come up with ideas as to why they are not where they were, where we would like them to be. They're not, you know, corn snakes, ball pythons. Uh, Darren Watson said viper boas, and I agree here. I love viper boas, uh, but I know why viper boas are where they're at right now, and they're not as popular. I mean, they are finicky eaters. I mean, they they don't naturally want to eat little fuzzy mice. They just don't, and historically in this hobby, if, if the snake doesn't naturally want to eat little fuzzy mice, we don't tend to see them that often because people don't breed them that often. Um, and, and, they, and they said, uh, oh, Daryl said, I'm surprised when searching for them, uh, the pickings are so slim or the breeders selling them have a questionable history. And I'll tell you right now, the breeders selling them usually aren't viper boa breeders. Uh, they were imported animals because a huge chunk of viper boas are imported animals. And not many people are breeding them. And so, as I agree, I wish Viper Boas, and I'm hoping in the future, they do grow in uh, popularity, because I think they're really cool looking. Uh, but right now, I think it's still, they're cheap to import, so you're still going to get a lot of imports. A lot of those imports aren't going to eat or make it, so they're not going to breed, and they're not going to have babies. So that's kind of the, the battle we fight there with those. But I think they're really cool. I saw a Viper Boa the other day, someone posted online, it was orange, like bright orange. Like they vary that, in color. It's really neat. And the, the crazy thing is they're kind of like a, like a Christmas present because you get them from these importers. <laughs> at, well, I know they, what you mean. And they, and they come out of the wild and they're dirt ugly. They're covered. In, and then they shed. And then you go, oh, shit, this thing is red. And you had no idea it was red because it was covered in dirt from being in the wild. So they're kind of cool if you can get them. It's just they, they are tricky to find. Uh, Robert Powers said Pitchophis. He said there's so many lo- localities and colors. I think they're gaining popularity, Pitchophis. I, I had a lot of people say that online too on, on my personal page. Um, bull snakes and go like gopher snakes, bull snakes are gaining some popularity. The problem with pine snakes is like the black pine that everybody wants, you can't have, it's protected. Louisiana yeah. pine snakes are endangered. So you're really left with northern pines. Um, but there's a lot of cool stuff going on with bull snakes and they're getting a lot of a lot of push. So I see, I see Pituophis on the upswing. Uh, Jason Brumley said Antaresia. I think uh, Antaresia problems are very similar to 
the Viper bubble problem. Obviously not imports. We're not getting import Antaresia because if you don't, if no one knows, I mean, you can't get them. They're from Australia and we're not importing stuff from Australia because we can't. But they're not natural little fuzzy mouse eater by nature either. Um, yeah, I had like three people say um, Liasis and Antaresia. Yeah, both. The, the, uh, most of these snakes now liasis i think you can get them to eat rodents a little easier and the babies also obviously start out larger because when you're talking anteresia you're talking stimpsons and spotted and children yep. like i have and those babies are so small and right? they're little pistols too <laughs> as far as i've heard you know i they, haven't they're had not them. super friendly um but like they're not eating like you're gonna have to feed them like mice they're really small i mean they're there's like tails not not a pinky but like tails of it's just they're so small and as cute as they are, they're not all super friendly. And so that kind of turns some people off. Uh, Ryan Goslow also said Pituophis. Uh, Bill Bradley said anything North American. And this one, I, I will get to one here, which is surprising, but he said, um, he said anything North American that isn't a Cali King morph. Yeah. There's tons of California King sex. Uh, but like, Chuck Wallace, I have seen Chuck Wallace start to gain a little bit of popularity. I see them in the reptile shows I do, but they're still wild caught. For the most part, they're wild caught offspring for our uh, individuals from out west. But Chuck Wallace are really cool. You know, bearded dragons are huge for what they are, but Chuck Wallace are basically our version of a bearded dragon. And, do you and think it's because you have to have, like, different licensing to have native if you're in the desert area? If you're in those areas. Because I know in California it's illegal to have Chuck Wallace. Yeah, and, and I think so. And, and that does tend to hit her because the problem is you could collect them in, in California because they live there. If you could legally, you could collect them and then breed them there. And that'd be awesome. But the problem is you can't collect them and you can't own them. And so no one's really going out and getting them. Uh, mine that kind of ties into this that I want to bring up and I have Travis here. So I'm going to bring it up is rubber boas. I, I'm so shocked. And I always have been that rubber boas are not, more readily available in the hobby it's a boa from our own country and if you're the kind of person who likes sand boas and all that stuff they fit right in your wheelhouse rosy boas they fit right there i mean rosy boas took off but i guess there's five million locales and people go crazy over locales but i, I don't get it well, travis why do you think rubber boas are not as prevalent <clears throat> i think it's a couple of reasons um i don't I don't want to say the legality isn't a part of it because I'm sure the legality is a part of it. You know, it makes it harder to get a hold of them. But I honestly think it's more a, you know, you bring up Rosie Boas and how they're super popular. And they're super popular because they're really easy to breed. They tend to mature in a quicker time than rubbers do. They generally start well, you know, rubber boas, you know, if you try to breed a rubber boa before four or five years of age, it's not going to happen. And people don't want to wait four or five years. There is no real morphs to them. They're just yeah. a gray brown snake. And people look at them and think, well, it's just a gray brown, ugly snake. They, as babies, can be extremely difficult to get started. Um, and I think that that's people who are ignorant of their actual nature. So baby rubber boas are born late in the season. It is more common for them to go basically straight into hibernation and not eat at all until spring. But people are so used to, I get my baby out, it sheds, and then I feed it, and I feed it, and I feed it, and then it has to go down that 
that whole concept is foreign to them. So then they get pissed off that they can't get the baby to eat and they keep trying to keep it up and feed it instead of being like, look, they've, they've been born out. They'll go a month or two living on their yoke. And then I put them down for winter and that scares the hell out of people and nobody wants to do it. So, you know, they're not super popular for a bunch of reasons. And then people just start giving up on them. I think a lot of these end up on this list uh, for that reason. Um, in the hobby, we tend to really like cookbook versions, cook, you know, cookbook versions of reptiles. There's a simple instruction list, same thing for all of them. You know, I put them in here at this time, I drop the temperatures, I feed them, I put them together, rinse and repeat. And when you get to the species that don't follow those rules, they tend to get thrown to the wayside and not in the hobby, which would be rubber boas, viper boas, anteresia. Um, they don't tend to follow the simple structure. Now, a lot of those animals, once you get them to adulthood, they're easy to care for and they'll eat and they'll survive. They may not breed as easy because they don't, it's, there's a little trick here, but you know, viper boas, if you, once you get a viper boa eating, it's usually pretty good. Um, I know anteresia, once they're eating, they're good. I would imagine rubber boas follow the same thing. Oh yeah. But even then they can be a pain in the butt. My male, if I can get five meals into him in a year, I call myself lucky. But they're, the males are like a third the size of the females anyways. And I'm the more I've been through it with these, I mean, I'm going into my fourth year, third year now with them. God, I can't even remember. And he's obviously fine doing this. He eats four or five meals, and then he basically just stops eating. And I still offer him. And once he stops eating, I, I don't offer as frequently because there's no point in stressing him the hell out. But if he's not going to eat, then I'm, you know, I'm just going to let him do his thing and not eat because that's what he wants to do. And you can't just force him to do it. You know, I think some people would be like, well, if he's not eating, I have to force feed him. And it's like, if you're not eating, then okay, you're not eating. Well, some people would get that and it wouldn't eat and they'd go, this snake's too difficult for me to keep. And they would get completely out of that species. But in reality, it's not difficult. It's way less difficult. It just don't feed it. It's Right. But you know, we even see that with ball pythons. I mean, ball pythons, they fast. It's normal. How many you go into any forum, anywhere, any Facebook group, anywhere about ball pythons. And I guarantee you there will be seven or eight open topics of, oh, my God, my ball python didn't eat. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's that time of year where they don't eat. Calm down. Sambo is the same thing. Someone posted a Sambo forum and said, oh, my snake won't eat. The first question is, is it a male? And usually yeah. it's, yes, it's a male. You're good. <laughs> go back, go on with your day. Your snake is fine. It'll eat in about oh four or five months. But yeah, I, I, so I, I I love rubber bows. And the other problem is when people do have them, they are so hard to get. There's waiting lists everywhere, and unless you're on them, you're not getting one. Because uh, trust me, I've looked for them, and other than the one time I thought I had them, and then I got screwed out of the deal, uh, I don't see them. And I, I've wanted, and it was funny. I remember listening to you on from the ground up and I remember you talking about the picture you saw of a rubber boa that made you want them. It's the exact same picture. I saw a rubber boa. It's in that North American field guide, uh, Audubon field guide. Yes. I remember that picture. and I love that picture. I'm like, I want that snake. And I've always loved it since the moment I saw it. So when I heard you mention that, I was like, I can picture exactly what he's talking about because I love that field guide and I love that picture. Uh, so let me go down this list some more. 
Uh, Randy, I always mess up Randy's last name because I don't know how it's pronounced, but Pegues said the entire Chilobothrys genus, which I'm not going to lie, I had to look up. But that's uh, like a little Cuban boa, some of the boas in the West Indies, um, little island boas there. Those guys are kind of cool. Uh, Matt Howe said ball pythons. I'm sure he's serious there. I had someone say that too. <laughs> Ryan Cox said insectivorous uh, snakes, which goes along with the same thing. If they don't fit our cookie cutter recipe of how to take care of an animal, we tend to not do them. And insectivorous snakes, they kind of fit that. They don't, they don't take our little fuzzy mice. And so we don't breed them, but there are some, and sometimes they're just tricky to get to eat. Like ring neck snakes are really cool, but you're probably not going to be able to get your ring neck snake to eat in captivity. They'll do fine in the wild. So some of those little guys are trickier, but they are pretty cool. We just kind of overlook them. Uh, any locale scrubs? Scrubs are getting there are on the uptick right now. Uh, day gecko species? I, I don't know. I, I know other than the regular day gecko, but um, I don't know any of those. Solomon Island monkey-tailed skinks? Those things are assholes, Lance. Yeah, that's why. Are. That's why people don't own them. <laughs> I'm telling you right now, they suck. I've worked with them in zoos, and they're assholes. That's why nobody wants to breed them. Nobody wants to have them. Uh, Chad Lundberg said blue racers. I love buttermilk racers, but the reason I can tell you the reason they're not in captivity, uh, that whole, that whole group, them coach whips do not do well in cages. They, uh, they, they tend to strike a lot of glass. They tend to go all over the place. They're very in the wild cover a large range. Um, and they're a huge like, diurnal hunter and, uh, cages don't seem to work so well for coach whips or buttermilk racers as much as, I would love buttermilk racers, also known as a blue racer, uh, to work out because they are beautiful. They are – you just can't believe a snake can be like that kind of blue. Um, and then Justin Smith said house snakes. And I think house snakes are on the uptick because I thought about getting into them at one point. They are pretty cool. And there's so many colors of them now, so many different little areas. House snakes are kind of like if you were to take our corn snake and mix it with a python, there's a house snake. And see, they used to be crazy popular – 15, 20 years ago. They were, I mean, everybody had them, everybody was breeding them, and then, yeah, all of a sudden they just dropped. Again, I think a lot of that comes down, and it really comes to ball pythons. Uh, that's about the time of the ball python craze, and it really became morph crazy. If there were not morphs, if you could not make the very first of this or a bright colored that, they got thrown by the wayside. So there's a lot of those, like, you know, you see people freaking out now about some of these Australian pythons that are starting to reproduce. Some of the ones that people don't have a lot of, not the carpets, you know, like Maclots and all that. That's because in the early 2000s, you could find them. People had them. But there's no giant morphs. They're not brightly colored. And so when it's that or an albino pied ball python, the person's going, usually, is going with the albino ball, uh, pied ball python. And so I think that does hurt a lot of these guys. At least it has in the last 15, 20 years. I think we're starting to see that cycle where we go, okay, we had ball pythons and morphs. Uh, let's see what else we can get that we can't. That's not as common. But what, do you have any other ones that stuck out on your, on your post, April? Uh, African egg-eating snakes, garter snakes. Um, garter snakes are on the uptake, and I think you can thank uh, Emily for that one. Yeah, I think you're right, actually. Emily on Snake Discovery uh, loves her garter snakes and talks about them all the time. They are really cool, actually. Um, and they're neat because they kind of go against what you're told. Do not house your snakes together. And then you're like, oh, but garter snakes like to live with each other. So, okay, house those guys together. Um, 
And then you get some really pretty, like the red sided ones are really pretty. Yeah, I love the ones that are like the blue and red. Oh, so yeah. pretty. Um, Euromastic species? I love my Euromastics. And <laughs> I've always thought that they were cooler than bearded dragons. You know, bearded dragons took off and they became the pet lizard. It was Delm or leopard geckos. Um, and yeah, Euros like it a little hotter, but you never have to deal with bugs. Just buy them some veggies, buy them some lentils. They love dried lentils. They'll sit there and munch the crap out of them. Um, and Euros, depending on the, they come in so many cool colors. Especially like some of the ornate euros, yeah. the bright greens, bright blues. And my oscillated euro is amazing blues and yellows and pinks and stuff on them. Uh, I think euros, I, it's funny, there's a comment on our, uh, so if you listen to our podcast from an Apple device in the reviews, one person gave us five stars and then also said we should have more, have a euro person on. I was like, I thought, I thought about it, I was like, I don't know a euro person. I mean, I own a Euromastics, but I don't, it's not one of the things where I research him. I just, I have him. He's cool. So if anybody knows a, a, a a euro person that would like come on talk let us know, let know. <laughs> um viper gecko geckos was another one um i'm gonna look that up what's a viper gecko they're really freaking cool you, would um, say, you got the little barking geckos yeah i like geckos i have the dwarf geckos and i didn't even think to to put them on there but any species really of the dwarf geckos are really cool so it's like the morning geckos and smaller um those so are vi- viper geckos are itty bitty they're i mean they're really neat like half the pictures are them sitting on a quarter. Well, that's the babies. Yeah, they get they get bigger. Okay, I didn't know how big they got. I mean, they're not they're not huge, but I mean, they get. I see one here on somebody's fingers. Yeah, they're, okay. They're not leopard gecko size, but they're not like itty bitty dwarf gecko size. Yeah, um, they're pretty though. We have Howard Redding said Ramphia. Oh, I can't even say my own snake's name. My God. <laughs> I'm just, I'm going to give up with Latin today. Um, he said beak snakes. <laughs> um, what else? There's one more that stuck out and I can't find it. Oh, Australian water dragons as well. Yeah, that they used to be huge. And, I mean, you still find them at like PetSmart. That's kind of the only place you tend to see water dragons. I always thought water dragons were a great uh, replacement for iguanas. Um, you know, everybody wanted to have iguanas and I was like, Get a water dragon. It's it stays small, er, stays small. You know, it doesn't get big. Um, but I understand the Australian ones. You're talking about like the big brown ones. Those are really pretty. Yeah, they got the big old heads. I mean, they get girl. The males got that big head. Um, they'll probably come back around if they're still in the states and people are breeding. That's another problem with anything Australian. Yeah, is if it got thrown to the wayside, you better hope somebody still had a few of them to breed because if not, we're screwed. So. I think soon it's going to be almost everything. Like if you don't already have it here, sorry about your luck. Yeah. I mean, that's, we talked with uh, Megan a few episodes back about anacondas. That's where they're at with anacondas. If it's not here, it's not coming in. So, yeah. So that was, I, I like that question. I like, and it gives you an idea of what other people want. And I think we're starting to see more of these species show up. And I see them as shows. You see more of these things start to show up uh, that are not ball pythons, leopard geckos. Uh, hog nose, you know, the common stuff. And that's cool because there are some really cool, like, like you two have the beak snakes. And for you, that's a really cool snake. You know? Um, I mean, I think my Burmese python's really cool too. So <laughs> I am <laughs> happy to kind see. of basic. I'm happy to see that berms aren't like they used to be though. You don't see them as often. You don't see baby berms everywhere like you did 10 years ago. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, the Lacey Act getting pushed through, I think took a chunk out of that but what's yeah, crazy people is people are getting rid of them or not breeding them anymore or what's crazy is people breeding the shit out of retics still 
Like, they're all over the place. I see them at shows all the time. I'm like, this is a lot of big snakes that someone's going to buy. People are going to buy. I'm like, it's a lot of snake. Yeah, and it's, in some respects, still problematic. Well, especially since you have somebody on YouTube who posts videos all the time with their retics, and everybody goes, I want a retic. I'm like, not you everybody. Don't want a retic. Not everybody. <laughs> so that's, that's almost like, not everybody needs a retic. I get that it looks cool to see this guy with a, you know, 17 foot snake sitting there. But what you're not seeing is all the shit, all the food, and the fact that you're going to at some point have to take that snake out. You may be by yourself and you can't, you don't want to take anything out by yourself because it ends up like that woman we talked about last week in the video where she got bit by the retic. So, I mean, yeah. As cool as they are, I thought about getting one at one point. And I was like, and then I rethought it and said, you know what? That's just a complete different headache that I don't want to have to deal with. See, the only retic I would get would be a dwarf, super dwarf. And that's because it will not get to be this out of control potential monster. I just can't imagine 18, 19 foot of snake that I have to take care of. And then some of the people that own multiples, I'm like, Jesus Christ. Yeah, just I- all the space even is just nuts. Well, and then you know, you shove it in an eight foot, eight foot by three foot cage. I'm like, that thing is eighteen foot long. Don't you think? And don't get me wrong, I've got some snakes that I, you know, I just feel like retics. We've talked about before. They need space, and people just don't give it to them. But anyways, so that was our questions. Now we jump over to what the listeners posted this week on our. And I actually got that one up. I think it was uh, Monday night, Tuesday. So you proud of me, April? I got it up early enough for people to put stuff on it. I'm very proud of you. I kept on seeing notifications all through the week. I was like, oh my goodness, it actually got put up. Uh, Stephen Livingston hit us with two articles on new species. Uh, One was a new species of velvet gecko that was discovered in Australia. I figured that's right up your alley of small Australian geckos. Yeah, I love my Australian ones. A lot of mine are from South America, though, my small, tiny ones. Weird geckos. (laughs) And then uh, a new species of iguana, which was really... It's not like they discovered the new species, like they were out in the jungle and they found it. It was they realized, oh, these gecko, these uh, iguanas that we've been calling this for so long are actually different. It's the great thing about DNA. Once they once they start looking at the DNA, they go, oh yeah, there's a reason that one looks different because it's different. It's science, bitch. Um, so they they split up a couple of species of uh, of iguana into more species, which also gets confusing at some points. So just how much we split here and there. Um, yeah, but. just learning new things <laughs> and then things getting reclass, renamed. They're not this anymore. They are this now. It's very confusing. <laughs> and then Bryant McDowell Jr. posted an article from Hawaii of a four football python being found in Hawaii. And if anybody doesn't know why that's a problem, you can't own snakes in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Any, any of them, none of them, especially the four football python they found roaming out uh, in a neighborhood in Hawaii. Uh, so again, don't break the law as I sit here with my ticket for breaking the law. Don't break the law. It's bad. But again, yours was an accident. Somebody doesn't accidentally import a ball Python into Hawaii. You wonder how that ball Python got there too. I mean, because it did, I mean, they had to sneak that in something to get it there. But yeah, that was an interesting one. It had to have been like pre- 9-11, 9-11, honestly, because now, like, security is so much crazier. I know. I don't. But I feel like, how could how would you even do that? Like, stick it in your pocket and hope it doesn't come out? I don't know. Just put it right up inside. Anyways. Wow. Uh, 
Matt Howe had an article about why glass frogs are transparent. If you've never seen a glass frog, they're super cool. Uh, I know some people at the shows I do that, that sell them. And they're always fun to just pick up the cup and like look straight through them. Um, but they talked about the transparency being kind of for camouflage. So when the frog is on a leaf, they are somewhat green on top. But what happens is when they get on a green leaf, because they're transparent on the bottom, the green from that leaf also kind of shines through their body and it blends their body in better with the leaf. So they don't stick out as a completely different shade of green from the leaf. You're getting more of a diffused green color and it hides better. It's able to camouflage better, which is kind of cool. That's cool. Yeah, super cool. I didn't, because I always wondered, why the hell can you see through this this frog? <laughs> but that is why you can see through the frog. The more you know. Ta-da. And then <laughs> Lance Kirkman talked about molecular reptiles. Molecular reptiles is just basically breeding every species of python at this point. That's what it seems cool. like. Super cool. Congrats to that. It is. They, uh, they just had Jaya scrub, uh, scrub pythons lay eggs. Um, basically, any species of python that only like five people own or four people own, they have it and they're breeding it this year. That's what it seems like. Because this is like the third time I think we've referenced them mm-hmm. for breeding stuff. I, this is scrubs are not my wheelhouse, but I know that some people love the crap out of them. I can't tell you the difference between any of them. I always still think of them as amethystine pythons because that's what every book when I grew up called them. So, hey, on that topic, um, take us a little off the rails. I would like to give a shout out to David Means. So two years ago at Carpet Fest, David brought a couple of his scrubs. And I, I remember seeing videos of that. Yeah. I was these there. Were, <laughs> you remember. these? They were impressive yep. as hell animals. Mm-hmm. And my daughter was infatuated. Um, she probably spent a good hour, hour and a half just down there watching all of it and watching everybody hold them. And finally, she inserted herself enough to be able to hold them. and. I I thought she wasn't going to give that male up when she got a hold of him. She was just truly, truly infatuated with them. Um, a couple of weeks ago, David hit me up and said that that pair that he had there had produced a clutch and he remembered my daughter's interest in Aww. them and just how involved she was with them. And so with my permission, he wanted to offer her one of the hatchlings from that clutch. Now, the first thing I thought was no way in hell because <laughs> this is a big, this is a big, you know, these are not animals for just anybody. Um, but, you know, I talked with David some and he said, you know, I'll talk her through it. I'll make sure she understands. And then I said, you know, I got another idea. I'm going to make her write a report on these. So nice. that she goes out and she does the work and she understands what she's getting in her hands into. Did you make her present and it to you? I I made her write up a report and she gave it to me and to David and we graded her on it. And <laughs> I also I also sent it out to a handful of other people to be ghost reviewers because obviously as her parent, I know that I'm not completely unbiased. Um, but everybody who got it and reviewed it and David all said that she did a fantastic job. And David even said that he wished that 90% of people who contacted him for scrubs put even a fraction of the effort that my daughter put into it. So, so what did you tell her when you introduced that? Did you say, Hey, this is, you might get one, but first you have to do this report. I I showed her the the message from David and said, Mm -hmm. you know, 
and she 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 got all excited. I was like, you you're putting a hold on this because this is more snake than you've ever had to deal with and even know about. So I have to think on this first. And after I thought about it, I what I said was, okay, here's the deal. If you want to do this, you need to prove to me you know what you're getting into. So you're writing a report and you're going to give it to David and I and we're going to read it and we're going to review it and we're going to grade you on it. And if you pass, then we can go forward. But if you fail, that's it. <laughs> and and she, I mean, she took it seriously and she put the work in. Um, so, and, you know, and David said there were still a couple of things that he wanted to talk with her on, um, less because she got things wrong, but more because he disagreed with some of the information from the sources that she got. And he would like to discuss with her why he views it differently. But it's just, it's a powerful thing for one, somebody who, you know, my daughter was basically a nobody to this guy. But he, you know, this goes back to the difference between a hobby and a lifestyle and a passion. He could see what was there in my kid, even though he didn't even know her. And he came back around later to to feed that interest. And that, I mean, that speaks volumes to me about the type of guy that David is. And then the fact that he wants to work with her to make sure that she really does this right. Because again, he's he's feeding that interest that he sees there, and it's it's feeding that next generation. And obviously, my my kid's into snakes because she sees me into it. But it's one thing for me to encourage my daughter; it's another thing for somebody, you know, like I said, basically a complete stranger to see that and to feed forward into that. Let's get the next generation to have this same passion that we have. So. It's 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 completely tangential to what we were talking about, but with, when Scrubs uh-huh. came up, it, like I said, a huge shout out to David for that because that's just that's a really solid thing, and it blew me away that he made that offer. I'm I'm really appreciative of, of him for doing that, and I know my kid is just she's over the moon about that the is, idea. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, because it, it's not like he's just giving you a scrub. Go here, here's a scrub. You can breed it like it's a baby's back. It's, it's there's a completely different feeling about how he's he's gonna feed her passion for this whole hobby. And granted, she has that passion because you're there. But imagine someone doing that same thing to a kid who they their parents aren't into reptiles, but they're willing to let them get one. And imagine someone doing that and just changing the way that path for that kid. A lot like us, you know, you know, that became part of our life because we got into them. Yeah, and if they didn't have that opportunity. So that's really awesome. I, that's that whole process. And making your kid write a report is hilarious. Hey, I mean, like I said, I wanted to make sure that she knew what she was getting into because it's not going to be a case of I get the snake and then it turns into a nightmare for her because that's not going to do anybody any good. <clears throat> so, I hope, are you getting a mail? That has yet to be determined. <laughs> It it might be more prudent, but you know, I just remember the video. I remember the video. It was like he had a massive female there, right? Yeah, the female was probably twelve feet or so. But even then, I mean, she was only about as big around as my arm. Yeah, (laughs) still a lot of snake. It's still a lot of snake, and you know. You know, my daughter, she even recognized that. Like, she called out in her report. She's like, you know, once it's more than about six feet, there's no handling it by yourself. So, 
there's my 16 year old kid who's got more brains than some people on the internet. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Way more common sense than most adults that are posting videos on the internet. That is true. That's awesome. That's a great story. So, all right. So that is our, our, that's a good feel good moment for the week. So now let's talk about YouTube where there tends to be less feel good moments. Um, we had pretty good YouTube videos this week. Yeah, I'm like, it wasn't bad no, this week. No, this, this week I don't, I don't have videos of, uh, anybody getting bit or handling all I could have posted a ton of videos of a certain person in Florida free handling venomous snakes like a moron. Anyways, that's off topic. So the first video was from Zilla. Zilla does a cool little series. I don't know if you've ever seen them uh, before, but it's uh, beyond the glass. And it's kind of like when we talk, I talked to Dave Kaufman before it's, they have a guy who goes out and he uh, sees these, these reptiles and amphibians in their natural habitat takes measurements, gets more, you know, UV ratings and, and basking temps and uh, ambient temps and gets these ideas of what it's really like out there for these species. And the one they posted this week happens to be a species that I have got to get at some point, but it's the Calabars Python or the Calabars burrowing Python, which is misleading because it's not actually a Python. Uh, it's its own group, but, I think they're awesome looking They're And if, and if you don't like dirt snakes, then you're not going to like this one. Cause it's, it's a dirt snake. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it was kind of like, nah, okay, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not your thing. It's not your thing, but I, I love, you know, short stocky snakes, especially fossil snakes. Like I love the rubber boas. Um, I love my Indian. I thought before my Indian sand boas cause their head and their tail look similar. Same thing with the calabars, the calabars, will actually ball up similar to a ball python and take their tail, which looks like their head, and wiggle it above their body uh, to try and survive getting attacked by something. But it was just cool. This is it's, this kind of fits as a snake that I wish was in the hobby more. Um, I wish there were more calabars. And usually if you see calabars in the hobby, they're imported. Uh, they don't tend to be captive bred. But I just liked this video because I knew I was going to have Travis on. He had... Uh, rubber boas, which are kind of like our version of the calabars. I mean, they're a fossorial snake with that whole head tail thing. Um, so I like that video. I just they do they do a lot of them in that series, um, and it's kind of cool to see. And I talked about it with Dave before Dave Kaufman. It's cool to see someone go there and show you because we're so far removed many times from where our animals originated from. You know, it's you know I don't so many people don't. Unless the name of the country is in the actual name, like Brazilian Rainbow Boa, a lot of times people couldn't name a country. Like, I'm willing to bet 95% of people that own ball pythons, other than saying it's from Africa, couldn't name a country in Africa that it came from. So, Sub-Saharan, man. <laughs> below the desert. It's somewhere below that desert. Af Africa's not that big. Not, uh, not big at all. No, I agree with you. I Calabars are really awesome. Um, and for a long time, I thought about picking up calabars instead of rubbers, but I, I, I told myself I needed to get the rubber first because, like you said, I thought I fell in love with that picture, and it was no, I, I, I need this first. Um, but calabars have been on my radar and are still on my radar, and at one point here, I probably will end up trying to pick some up if I can find some. I. Uh... When I was in Tinley last year, there was one had a trio for sale, but I luckily uh, I would have bought it had I already spent all my money on my Indian Samboas. Uh, but I do want to get so I just I love you can find some really pretty ones where they're brown with the speckling of lighter brown on them. Um, and again, if you don't like dirt snakes, they're not going to be your thing because 
They're just a brown snake. But if you like them, you can see the subtleties and how cool they are. Uh, yeah. So I just I had to put that video in there just because you don't see Calabar. You may talk about them that often. Um, they talk in there about how they've been reclassified so many times. You know, we call them burrowing pythons, but again, they're not a python. Uh, and then they're not really a boa. At one point, they got lumped in with sand boas, and they're not a sand boa. Uh, they're their own genus. They, they, they give them their own genus. Um, so, yeah, go watch that video. He also finds some other cool stuff in that video, uh, non-Calabar uh, python-related, some other cool animals. But th- that whole series is really cool. I didn't like. even know they were doing that series. This was the first I've seen of it. Where my microphone fail? I'm like, we're dropping things? What's happening? Oh my, like, my cats are going crazy. You're dropping things. Travis is the only one that has his shit together, apparently. Yeah. It's a makeshift setup until my internet works again. <laughs> All right, I'm back. There we go. So, yeah, there was that video. And then, kind of, uh, I talked about that video reminds me of Dave Kaufman. I have a Dave Kaufman video that went up this week. And this one, uh, I think, was... It's one of those things that happens in the hobby that's a negative that needs to definitely be put out there. People need to see more often. Uh, Dave Coffin, the video was eggbound snake, my uh, efforts to save her. You know, it's one of those things a lot of times in our hobby we've talked about before. People tend to not want to bring up things that may come off as negative. And I don't think the snake being eggbound, this thing being eggbound does not reflect on dave at all but there are people out there that would have that happen and assume that it reflects on them and they don't want to have the conversation like like mites people don't want to talk about having mites because they assume it affects them or uh some of the viruses they don't want to talk about if their snake died from that virus because it could affect how people think of them in the future um i like these kinds of videos that show you these issues that you need to be aware of and we've talked about before when breeding an animal it's the most dangerous thing you can do for your pet breeding it because it's there's a chance they could die so if you if you don't if you want to have the lowest chance of your animal dying on you, never breed it. And in this video, he had a bull snake that was egg bound. He soaked her, trying to get her to pass the eggs. It didn't work. Uh, he had to take it to the vet. Mind you, he did all this on a Sunday when there was no vet open. Yes. If there was uh, a vet open, he would have gone. Yes. And so he soaked her, and then it, she pooped a little bit, but nothing else. And then the next day, he took her to a vet, and. When I took the x-ray that they realized, and this one is crazy, is it wasn't just that the eggs were egg-bound. It didn't get stuck in the, uh, the oviduct or whatever on the way out. It actually tore through the oviduct, and the snake had passed the eggs out of the oviduct and into her body cavity. And so that was the derailment right there, and it derailed the whole train, and nothing else could get past it. Um, so they did a surgery, and they were actually able to save the eggs. They put them. He has them incubating right now. We'll see what happens with them. I'm but, so curious about that. Yeah, that would be amazing. He, he had gotten four eggs. She had laid four eggs, and then this happened. Uh, but it was so weird. Like I said, it's it just it tore straight through the side and and started laying eggs into the, into the body cavity and blocked everything behind it. And then the like, the really scary part of this whole thing is that snake's not his snake. That was on a breeding loan. That's somebody else's snake. Which is that, like my worst nightmare. Oh my gosh. I know. The thing, okay, now I got to go. I got a vet bill. I got to go. And it's not even my snake. And it could die. And I could have to financially replace the snake for that person. I have nothing to show for it. And then the snake, also, you're losing uh, someone's pet. Like that, that was that person's pet who entrusts you to take care. And again, the snake getting egg bound is in no way Dave's fault. That is a freak accident to have it rip through the side of the oviduct on the way out. But. I thought that was an interesting video just because, you know, again, in our hobby, it's gotten better. But in our hobby, people like to hide a lot of the negatives that happen in their collection. 
even though others could learn from that. You know, well, the whole Nidovirus thing, a lot of what people are learning through Nidovirus is because of the negatives that have happened in other people's collections. So that's a good video. I like that video. It's, it was an interesting video to see that whole process. After, as someone who also had to go have a sink, have surgery, I felt Dave's pain of having to sit in that damn car all day long. <laughs> oh, yeah, you had to do that during oh, COVID. <laughs> yeah, eight hours in my car waiting for them to finish the surgery on my BOA. It, it was a nightmare. So, anyway. Travis, have you had any adverse events happen to you while breeding, keeping, anything like that? Um, not while breeding. I did have, so I had a buddy who his marriage came apart and he basically was, he had to give up his animals or, you know, find housing for them. So I housed them for him. And when he brought them all to me, um, somewhere along the line, the, one of the snakes just, I guess the, the moving caused the problem. Um, she got a massive systemic sepsis and I had to take her in and we tried to treat her with some pretty heavy antibiotics. And if you want to know how horrible sepsis is, see it on an ivory ball Python, watch that ball Python turn from head to toe as red as a bloody Mary. And then watch all of that red just slowly creep down their body as the blood clots and pools in their belly. It's a seriously messed up situation. Um, And, you know, I, as soon as I saw that it was happening, I, I called my buddy and I told him like, you know, there's something wrong. I'm getting her into the vet. You know, I talked him through everything that was happening. He doesn't blame me because he's, I mean, I told him, I'm like, this happened about two days after you got here. And I think it may have just been the way she was moved. She didn't take the move well and, you know, treated as best we could. And she ended up just crapping out and it was, it was shitty all around. That sucks. Yeah. It's, well, and, and the problem a lot of times with, and we've talked before with reptiles, is that, and, and most animals, once they're sick and you notice it, it's usually too late. Like, they're really good at hiding shit for a long time, and sometimes mm-hmm. stuff just, it takes over, and you can try the best, you have the best vet around, and you still can't fight it. Yeah, I have- the only other thing I've had, I had a, I've got a gray band. Uh, well, I have two, but my female, I just, um, you know, they're really secretive animals. You know, they don't <laughs> like to just hang out. But I noticed she was out crawling one evening and just by fluke, I, I, I noticed that her back end seemed a little bit swollen. So when I picked her up and looked at her, it it bothered me. And I contacted uh, a buddy of mine who's a vet down in Florida. And I was like, I don't know what's going on here, but I don't like this. And he said, well, put her in a box and send her down to me. And put her in a box, sent her down and he x-rayed her and she had a tumor growing on her kidney and he opened her up and he took it out and he kept her for a month or so to get stabilized and sent her back to me and I've had, I've got her back and she's fine. Um, you know, and he took pictures of it. So I've got pictures of this snake tumor and everything, but you know, I, I got her and a couple years later I got a male. I had hoped to breed them together. Now she's, there's no way I'm going to pair them up because 
that's a traumatic thing to have her go through. I'm not going to stress her out anymore. Yeah. And so, you know, now I've just got a pair of pet Alterna and I'm good with that. I'm fine with that. But, you know, I'm glad I saw it when I did because, you know, when these snakes just like to hide a lot, it can get away from you real fast and you'll never know. I had one that had an infection in its mouth um, and I didn't notice it. I'm, the second I noticed it, I took it to the vet. It got on antibiotics. I was doing daily cleaning, all of that. But it's not every day that the snake opens its mouth for you. So by no. the time I noticed that something was wrong, it was already way too gone. Um, which I have tried to find a snake that looks like that one. And I cannot find anything that's close, which is really frustrating to me. <laughs> the whole situation was very frustrating, but yeah, I, I didn't know until it was way, way too late. And then I had, um, a corn snake have a tumor and it was the same thing where I noticed a bump. And by the time I noticed a bump, the tumor actually took up like all of the body cavity of that, you know, that area of the snake. Um, and it wasn't something that we could do surgery for and fix. So that was just kind of like, well, if it, you know, looks like it's not, if it's not eating, not pooping, having trouble, and then we can talk about euthanizing. Um, but he lived a good while after that, but I couldn't do anything surgical for that one. And then also, you know, I had, most people know I had the virus that went through my collection. So I've had a lot of crap, honestly. And then I had my corn snake who had a scent gland that abscessed. And by the time I took that in, um, it was too late. Now that one was on me where I tried to topically take care of it and it, it just got too bad. And then it, it, it was really ugly. It was real ugly. Um, but yeah, that's all my bad luck so far <laughs> in the hoppy. Uh, it's, and that's what it happens to everybody. If, if you keep long enough and you keep enough animals, it's going to, it, all this stuff's going to happen at some point. It doesn't matter how great of a keeper you are. I mean, shit happens. That's, you deal with live animals and that's one of the issues with dealing with live animals is something's going to happen. I had, um, a wild caught beak snake and it went into shed and it was the very first shed with me. And when it started actually shedding its skin off, all the rest of its good skin sloughed off. That's gross. Super gross. I took it to the vet when this was occurring. And he said because, well, very likely, basically there was nothing we could do for it. It was really like sloughing off all its skin. But um, you know how the snakes, when they go into shed, they have a little bit of layer of um, lubricant, liquid, whatever it is in between their... Uh, actual skin and then the skin that's about to come off. Well, apparently there was an infection in between that layer. Um, and that is what he thinks is the cause of the slothing off of uh, skin. But that was, that was traumatic for me when I, that, that would creep me out. I'd be afraid. I'd be afraid to touch it. I wouldn't. I... Yeah, it was, it was bad. And we tried to do like the silver dine on it, but it just, it was not going to happen. But that was the first time I ever knew that that was maybe, a thing. I, maybe I had no idea that that was even. You were producing the first scaleless beak snake. You can make millions. Well, it didn't work out positively. So <laughs> 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 it was it was really bad, actually. Something where you just don't you don't think of some of the things that happen in well, at least in my collection. Maybe I've just had utterly bad luck. Maybe I'm not as good of a keeper as I thought I was. I don't know. I question myself daily. So. <laughs> I think any good keeper does that. Yeah. Oh, that makes me feel better. <laughs> if you walk into your room and you don't think 
what can I do better? Then, I, you know, you, you may need to reconsider how you're keeping because you can always do better. You ever walk into your room and just like, there's just like, maybe somebody went to the bathroom or it's just smell and you smell that. And then your first thought was, oh shit, did something die? And then you're like, no, nothing died. Calm down. Like it's not, you don't have to jump to the worst possible outcome. Sometimes it's just a turd. My nose you, is yep. very good at uh, differentiating death versus turd. So I, mean, I, I know dead, I know like dead rodent is super easy to figure. I know that smell. I can smell dead rodent from a mile away. Um, sometimes to me, some, death is death, but I also worked at a funeral home in college. So that's creepy. That's a completely different <laughs> issue. <laughs> Nothing else about that is creepy. <laughs> to me, death is death. And I dealt with a lot of dead people. So I did. Okay. So moving away from, <laughs> moving away from dead people, the last video, you actually sent this to us in the group chat. Uh, before I even saw it online, was from Jason's Exotic Reptiles. Yeah. It was bug-eyed, albino boas explained. And this is kind of the video that made me message Travis. Like, hey, Travis, do you want to be on our podcast? Because I remember Travis talking about genetics and a lack of a color removal gene affecting eye formation. And this is one of those issues where I had that issue this past year with uh, a boa. It's albino to albino, and I got albino boas. And one of them had bug eyes. And, and listening to, in the video, uh, Jason from Jason's Exotic Reptiles, he explains he doesn't know exactly why this happens. And he's basing it off of what he, what he thinks is happening. And uh, he thinks it's something that eventually can be bred out. But after talking to, to Travis here, Travis talked before, and, and I'll have you explain in a second, I don't think it can be bred out. I think it's something that just happens because of the way these genes work in snakes. Even though I know you... You talked about it before, and it wasn't so much in boas. But if you can give us kind of a just a brief, what's happening there when you remove color versus altering the color, like a hypogene or something? Yeah. So I um I was able to catch this video at one and a half speed, so I may have missed some of the details that he had on it. But I I do disagree with his assessment that this is an associated gene and will be able to breed it out. Um, I. I believe that this is probably the same type of overall phenotype that we see with, you know, the bug eyeing in leucistic rats, leucistic uh, corns, balls, all those, you know, white snakes. Yeah, the palmetto corn. The yeah. So, see if I can figure out how to bring this down to Herbert talking <laughs> instead of pure <laughs> genetics. Um, the I'm good Active. with the pure genetics, though. So, like, put put that in there too. That makes me yeah. happy. Right. I I mean, I understand that some people are, but I have to, I have to cater to the whole audience. Um, Ryan Cox, he's talking about you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not calling out anybody names. <laughs> I, I don't know Ryan well enough to call out names. Um, so, okay, I'll go I'll go high level, and then I'll go more layman level. Um, so albinism is either a disorder characterized by disruption of the melanosome formation, and those are going to be your T-positive type, or melanin synthesis, and that could be either T-positive or T-negative type. Um, and studies in the typical laboratory animals, so things like rats, mice, zebrafish, things like that, um, have led to a hypothesis that all forms of albinism have related defects in the eye 
that are a result of this pigmentation infiltrating the developing eye cup. That whole pathway is basically channeled through a single common path. So all of these disorders have branch points of where they start, but to get into formation of the eye, they all track to one basic pathway in. And these same studies show that when you have these, uh, the, these abnormalities in pigmentation, whether it's all pigmentation or just melanin pigmentation, there is an associated misrouting of neurons and neurons tend to form along established pathways that are laid down by the melanocytes and the pigmentation cells as sort of, well, think of it like how ants, you know, when ants find food, they leave that little scent trail. The melanocytes and the melanosomes and the pigment cells, they do the same type of thing that the neurons follow. So if you have that pathway not getting laid down properly, then other cells that follow in along that pathway don't go along right. So the early stages of eye development involve what's called the retinal pigmentation epithelium. And that involves a whole bunch of pigmentation associated genes. And if you look at that epithelium, there's a lot of intracellular junctions that act as conduits for signaling molecules to regulate the how the eye develops. So signal molecules pass back and forth, telling certain cells to grow, certain cells not to grow, where to grow. And it's been demonstrated that when you knock out the pigment cells, you see downstream structural reorganization of both the cup itself and the structures within the eye. And these defects are in things like the cell production and expression of genes that specify cell fate, cell number, and cell propagation. So if the cells are propagating abnormally, if they're propagating excessively or in minimal amounts, the eye just doesn't form properly. Now, to make that more normalized, basically, the pigment of the eye is necessary for the eye to form properly, but this isn't saying that the eye has to be the right color for it to form properly. It's that the process that leads to coloration of the eye starts with a process of how the eye is formed is through a series of pathways that eventually leads to a fully developed and fully colored eye. But that pathway, if any of it gets disrupted, all of it gets disrupted in some form or other. So when you disrupt how the eye develops, part of that disruption is in the mechanism that regulates both the size of the eye and the position of the eye in the skull. So by disrupting that pathway, you disrupt the regulation of the structure. 
And is that why they were so, so like, I feel like it was very exaggerated how much they were protruding out of the head. And that's, I think that's down to the type of mutation. And so basically any mutation that has some disruption to pigmentation could cause this. And the greater or lesser degree of that disruption affects how highly or lowly the pathway is disrupted, which gives you a greater or lesser incidence rate and expression of it. So with that, and I'm guessing this is probably more particular to one of the strains of albino. Yeah, they call albino. Okay. And I, I don't remember him saying that in the video, but like I said, that could have been the fact that it was playing at one and a half speed and I just missed it. But that to me would imply that the call albino is probably a defect in the melanosomes, which are the organelles that hold melanin. So it's probably a very exaggerated T plus type of mutation. It probably develops melanin just fine, but the melanosomes themselves are so structurally messed up that they can't travel properly into the developing eye. And when they can't travel properly into the developing eye, the eye itself doesn't develop properly. So you get, yeah, this overexpressed, overgrown eyeball, or perhaps it's more a underdeveloped eye socket. You know, those are two possible outcomes of how it's coming. Well, what I noticed and, with, I noticed with mine, um, because both eyes have now since gone back in. But the the first eye, after the first shit, it was kind of like it wasn't so much the eyeball popped, but it was like there must have been some sort of fluid behind there. Because when it shed the first time, it leaked fluid from its eye uh, for a while and it deflated. The other eye, every time it sheds, it's now deflated some, but it still has a little bit of fluid. Every time it sheds, you can always see this fluid coming from the eye. Yeah, and you can sometimes that fluid happens and this can happen in like a normal snake. Their eye suddenly looks like it's distended. And what's happened is there's an accumulation of fluid behind that scale that covers over their eye. And sometimes that's because of an infection. And sometimes it's just because of irritation. My guess would be that could come down to, again, those, those cellular junctions that I talked about. If those become leaky, the contents of the cells can actually leak out through them. Which, if that happens, then basically the eyeball is turning into essentially a giant water balloon. Yeah. You should see the look on my face right now. It's a look of disgust. <laughs> <laughs> um, so things like that, you know, could contribute to it as well. Where, yeah, maybe it's that the eye cells aren't properly forming and so they're leaking fluid, which is then getting caught behind that scale, which is causing them to inflate like a balloon, which once they inflate like a balloon, then they pop out of the sockets because there's so much fluid pressure behind them. And then, you know, if you've got a snake that can shed and in shedding loses that pressure, decompresses some of that fluid out, then it's fine. Um, having that fluid there also is a source for potential bacterial infection, which is why I think a lot of people say, well, it's just an eye infection. I guarantee you it's not just an eye infection to start because inside of the egg is sterile. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. So th- those animals don't hatch out with eye infections in progress, but my guess is they hatch out and that eye is really, really prone to being infected as soon as they're out. And that's why most of them end up losing the eyes because they get an eye infection shortly thereafter and it just rages right through because those cells are compromised. Well, I mean, in parts of that video, you saw one of the boas that just had one eye that was really bad, but it was really bad. And it would rub against the either the side of the tub or the water bowl. And I would cringe because I could see that tissue like almost like flopping off. And I was like, oh my gosh, that is yeah, so could, disgusting. Uh, it, it almost looked like it was just dangling by the optic nerve. Yeah, that, it that looked like... creeped me out. I thought it. I was going to watch this snake lose its eye right then and there. <laughs> I well, really he, did. He does show he shows an adult uh, that had that problem as a baby, and you see the adult. The eye, although it does not look normal, has sunken back in. Um, it obviously it probably does not function. If it does, it may just see light, not anything other than that. Um, and I think that happens with most of, at least in boas. Now, I used to hate. You don't see this much anymore, thankfully. But the damn rat snakes. People used to breed them because they thought it was adorable. <laughs> they did it on purpose. They bred shit on purpose. They like, sold them as bug-eyed leucistics. What um, about the berms, the Lucy berms that are all bug-eyed? <laughs> I haven't noticed them. I haven't looked. I think they're ivories. Yeah, they've, they've got the, you know, pretty much anything that's got these, anything that's got something like this, It, I'm sure it all ties back to a melanin pigmentation deposition defect. You know, the leucistics in balls, in rats, in corns, the berms, um, I've seen it in a couple of retics. It's it's there. Even the T-negative albino bloods that I work with, I feel like their eyes protrude more. It's not, you know, exaggerated to that extent, but it's it's not as flat as, say, a normal. So, Well, and he talks in the video, a lot of people, it was always, you know, don't breed albino to albino because this will happen. And I did. I bred sunglow to sunglow, which is albino to albino. And only one out of 20-something snakes had it. Uh, but he bred, uh, you know, hets to each other and, and got them. So, you know, a lot of people feel, and, and I'm one of those, I'm, I'm going to find a het female to breed to the male that I held back just because I'm hoping it lessens my chance. But, you know, it's still the gene is still there. You're still removing uh, pigment. It's still a chance of happening, whether it's a het to a het or a het to a, you know, an actual albino. Yeah, it, it's inherent to the gene. It's, yeah. it's not something that you're just going to get rid of. And I don't know that het to visual is going to reduce the likelihood of it anymore. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's possible that it might, but it could just be a matter of the parentage. I mean, if the gene is there, it's going to happen, but maybe there's, you know, a secondary regulator gene that'll help modulate it. So it's not as extreme. And maybe that secondary gene is in a visual albino. And if you had two visuals and you brought them together, you'd be fine because that secondary gene was there. And maybe you get a het that doesn't have that regulatory element in there. And you breed the het to your visual and you just have all train wrecks. It's, it's a roll of the dice, either way you look at it. And and before anybody freaks out, the one that held back to breed is not the bug-eyed one that is also held back. The bug-eyed one is now a pet and and is by far the prettiest one out of the entire litter, of course. Go figure. I 
not going to ever breed them, but his, I mean, his entire body is red. So it'll just be a really pretty messed up eyed pet. Uh, so, but I saw that video and I, and I was like, man, this happened to me. And then, and then I've always remembered when you talked, I think it was from the ground up when you talked about that whole removing the pigment messes up the eye versus moving the pigment, such as a pattern mutation mm-hmm. which doesn't affect the eyes. And so that always, that always, that, that part stuck in my head just because I knew that I was going to be breeding albino to albino at some point and it was probably going to come up and it did. Um, so yeah, there was that video. I had one other thing that I wanted, just because I don't know how often I'm going to have a genetics person on here. Can you give us the layman's distinction between incomplete dominant and codominance? Cause you know, in snakes, we all use codominance, codominance, but like nothing is actually codominant. Right. It's everything we keep calling codominant for the most part is incomplete. Right. Correct. Okay. So, <laughs> um, let me figure out the best way to think of this. Okay. So there are only two types of inheritance. There is recessive inheritance and dominant inheritance. Okay. Mm-hmm. Recessive means you have to have two copies of the gene to see the phenotype. Dominant means that if one copy of the gene is there, there is a change in phenotype from normal. Now, what is incomplete dominant is if you have one copy, there is a non-wild type phenotype. But if there are two copies of the mutant gene, there is a non-wild type, non-single copy phenotype. So you have three phenotypes based on three different genotypes. A simple dominant is one copy or two copy. The phenotype is the same. Now, with codominant, it is a dominant gene that is expressed in conjunction with another codominant gene. It's describing a relationship, but it is not describing an inheritance pattern. Yeah, so I, I teach this because I'm a high school biology teacher, and so I teach this pro, this thing to high school kids who have struggled to be able to do a simple monohybrid Punnett square. And so I always tell them, uh, you know, think of co-dominance as like co-workers. If, if a gene is co-dominant, you're going to see both both things show up. Um, and my, my usual thing is like cattle, you know, white cattle, red cattle, breed it together, and you get roan, which is white and red, not pink. So you get uh, that co-relationship that you see both of them. Whereas with incomplete dominance, uh, you're going to get something. If you mix them together, you're going to get something completely different, uh, such as like flowers. You tend to see, you know, white and red and it makes a pink flower. Um, and that's like the simplest way I can try and get high school kids to understand it. Um, yeah. And the way I describe co-dominance is um, – to use parenting, okay? So, I am a parent. My wife is a parent. Together, we are co-parents because we co-parent our children. I use co-workers now, when I do it. It's co-workers. Right, but, well, yeah. and that works too, but like, I am a parent, and do you have kids, James? Yes, I have a daughter. Okay, so I am a parent, and you are a parent. And I am a co-parent because obviously I co-parent with my wife and you are a co-parent because you co-parent with your wife, but you and I, we're not co-parents. 
because you and I don't have a relationship gotcha. parenting together. So it's it's the relationship that defines co-dominance the same way it's the relationship that defines co-parenting. You know, now a single mom is just a parent. She's not a co-parent. So in snakes, again, we call everything co-dominant, even though I know it's, is there a co-dominant type? Is there any way any gene in snakes or, or reptiles in general works in that fashion that you know I have of? not seen, I have not seen anything that I would call a true co-dominant. The closest that I would say we have would be um, in the ball pythons, the spider blackhead hidden gene woma complex mm -hmm. so spider is an incomplete dominant gene where one copy gives you spider and two copies gives you a dead animal blackhead is an incomplete dominant gene because one copy gives you the blackhead and two copies gives you the super blackhead when you put spider and blackhead together you get an animal that looks basically like a normal and when you breed it, you only get spiders and blackheads. So this tells you that they're alleles of one another. And they both have dominant inheritance, but they're not simple dominant inheritance because each of them has a superform, albeit one of them has a terminal superform. But when you put them together, each of them is expressing their full phenotype in such a way that they're both being expressed together, which is why it looks like a normal, because if you think about it, the spider is turned way down in the expression of the black patterning and the blackhead is turned way up in the expression of the black patterning. And when you bring them together, it gives you what is essentially an even expression of black patterning. Can you, is there any way to get a visual of both together? Or are they always going to look normal? If you get a blackhead spider, it's always going to look normal. Gotcha. So let me ask you this. They talk about like in pied uh, ball pythons, you know, they talk about the side marker, the pied markers. Because it has markers, do you think that anything with a marker is technically an incomplete dominant trait? If you can visually see a difference between the homozygous and the heterozygous form? Yes. If, if there, well, if there is a consistent, you know, people gotcha. talk about markers in pieds, but they're not, necessarily consistent now i do think pied may be and i hate using this word now because it's become its own morph but a cryptic incomplete dominant in that the expression is very it's very very subtle but i believe it's there in all of them if you know what to look for now when they bred the first pied out to a normal and got what basically looked like all normals I can understand why they thought it was recessive, but if you take one of those normals, those het pied that looks normals and breed it to a normal and you really look closely, you can kind of segregate it out into two populations. The same way, like, you know, if you look at things like uh, Spectre or Spark in ball pythons, they're really, really, really subtle. And if you just saw them by themselves, or if you just threw them in with a thousand other normal ball pythons, you probably couldn't pick them out. 
but you might be able to pick them out and get lucky. Um, the same thing, you know, you can do the same thing with Pi. Justin Kabilka, he went through a whole bunch of normal looking animals looking for what he thought were Pied markers. And some of them were the, you know, the train tracks, which I don't think are a consistent enough one to really call a marker. But he went and he picked a whole bunch of those out and started breeding them together and ended up with pieds. Yeah. So he, he saw something that was there consistently in these normal looking animals that he could pick out on his own. You know, when you look at something like a Mojave ball python, if I throw a Mojave ball python in with 100 other ball pythons, you can pick that one out easy. It's not even a challenge. Yeah. You know, so that's an obvious incomplete dominant. But some of these other ones, I think, are really super, super subtle. And it depends on how, basically how it was found. You know, the pied, it was a visual. They bred it to a normal. They said, hey, all of these look like normals. So we're calling it recessive. But with the Spectre, it was, this looks just slightly, slightly different. And then when I bred it to something else, I got a massively different animal. So what this really is, is an incomplete dominant. You know, well, what if they had started out with the visual super stripe and bred that to a normal and popped out what looked like slightly different normals, would, but they didn't yeah. know that they were slightly different because it was a whole clutch of them. Well, that's, you know, with boas growing up with, with boa genetics, there's the hypogene, and we always they always call it co-dominant uh, because you have you have normal, you have hypo, and then you have super hypo, and the super just technically means homozygous. But anyways, uh, and so co-dominant stuck around forever, and it's you know, there's a culture of trying to break the use of the term co-dominant to to incomplete dominance. Is there anything April in? There's not much in in y'all other than like a couple of recessive things. A lot of stuff is line bred for you, right? Um, so we're kind of seeing with the T negative albino that the hets look a little bit different and we are not, we haven't noticed it really until recently. So we don't know how consistent this difference is that they look like a little bit more, it's all on the lateral, like a little bit more faded out or a little bit more pixelated kind of a thing. They just, they look different. Uh, that's the only thing I can relate to it with the short tails. Cool. That's our genetics lesson for the week. Yeah, we have no idea what we're looking at, but there's that. <laughs> <laughs> that is the, 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 this whole thing though, you know, it's funny that just basic people in the hobby ha can do punnet squares. Like it's a, it's one of those things when you were in high school, if you were not into snakes at the time, if you were in high school and you learned punnet squares, you're like, when the hell am I ever going to use this again? My and mom then, was so funny. She was so proud of me for breeding snakes because she, she literally was like, oh, my gosh, you're using your degree now. I'm like, wow, <laughs> mom, thanks. I just wanted to, that breeding snakes has allowed a larger population of, of people to, to learn basic genetics, even though we still screw up terminology and we're still trying to figure out shit along the way. But just the fact that so many people can do a simple pundit square because they have two corn snakes. Mm-hmm. So – I think that's funny. As a teacher, I'm like, that's funny when you always hear, when am I going to use this again? Well, if you ever own snakes. You might. <laughs> you might use it again. So that is all I have for this week. I know we went a little long, but uh, there's a lot of really good information in this one. I enjoyed this one. 
Do you hear my cat in the background? I can hear. I, I can, do. I, I do hear your ball sack meowing in the background. She's she's stuck on the refrigerator because I am boiling water right now. So you just, <laughs> she just put her on the refrigerator? <laughs> she jumped up there herself, and now she's like, oh, this is not safe to jump down. Jump down, cat. Jump. She wants jump. assistance right now. Don't you, don't you dare. <laughs> I don't scald, want a boiled cat. Scald your, scald your ball sack. Yeah, I tried to like mute it as much as possible, but oh my god, she's ridiculous. Um, but no, I do not have anything else for this week. So we did the US Arc stuff at the beginning, so Yeah. Travis, do you have anything else you want to add? Um I mean I guess I guess I could try and channel Carly with an animal of the week. Oh yes, oh, we do it. that. We haven't done that in a while. <laughs> um Okay, I'll I'll toss out velvet worms. Did Carly ever cover velvet worms? No, what the hell's a velvet worm? Okay, these things are cool as shit, man. <laughs> so <laughs> imagine a fuzzy rubber slug with caterpillar legs. What the hell? And that's what a velvet worm is. Um, they're a type of arthropod that kind of is the missing link between worms and arthropods so they've got like the little tiny segments that like an earthworm has but they're even smaller and they have little teeny tiny clawed feet and these antenna on the front end of them so they like slug antennas but they have a texture like velvet so it's like a wormy millipede yes but their feet are big and fleshy like you know like tardigrades the water bears yes yeah, imagine feet like that, but these are like you know, imagine one of those that's been stretched out to like to like you know anywhere between one and five inches. Velvet worm. What the hell? That is cool looking. <laughs> yeah, they are cool as hell. And one of the things about them that I think is totally awesome is their strategy for hunting and or defending themselves is they like spray vomit this sticky string substance oh i see it there's a picture of it oh yeah oh that's weird there's a video of it they've got like these cute little faces though yes it's like if a caterpillar had sex with a teddy bear what the heck (laughs) it's it's just like wrong with you i don't know what's wrong with the teddy bear and the caterpillar (laughs) that is that is weird so yeah, velvet worms, man. And They're, you stumped James. That's pretty impressive. I've never heard of a velvet worm. Okay, that that was an awesome animal of the week. I, that's Carly. If you're listening, we we miss your animal. Uh, of the week. Carly would be so proud. <laughs> Carly, if she's listening, is looking up velvet worm right now. I bet she's going to be like texting us to be like, "And did you know this? And did you know this?" <laughs> and they're like. They're like 500 million years old, and they haven't changed in all that time. So that's that's, cool. that, that's the reason I think tardigrades are amazing. You mentioned about just the fact that like what they can live through and what they get like that's an amazing organism that no one can actually see. <laughs> yeah, so microscopic, but the fact that they can live in like the vacuum of space and just be yeah, I'm cool. Uh, that's why I liked if y'all watch the do y'all ever watch the movie Ant Man? Yes, I have not. Oh, uh, in Ant Man, he, he shrinks down so small. That at one point, uh, he goes so small that there's tardigrades and they try to eat them. And I think it's hilarious. Because I'm like, hey, I know what those are. As soon as you see them, you're like, if you've ever seen a picture of a tardigrade, you're like, I know what that is. So, anyways, velvet worms are fucking weird. I appreciate 
I appreciate you adding velvet worms to my to my animal knowledge because that's a weird ass animal. So that is it. So if Travis, if anybody wants to get a hold of, or if you don't want to get a hold of you, either way. Uh, <laughs> but if if anybody wanted to get a hold of you, if they were trying to figure out why this thing's got big ass eyes and it's solid white, how how can they get a hold of you? Um, well, you can find me on Facebook, Travis Wyman. Um, as a point of clarification, if you Google me, I am not the motocross racer, Travis I did, Wyman. I did Google you and I saw that. <laughs> so don't, don't email that dude or find that dude's Facebook and think it's me. That's not me. Um, you can email me at esplundii at Gmail. That's A-S-P-L-U-N-D-I-I at Gmail. Or you can find me on Instagram at snakes and bakes. Snakes and bakes. That's that's funny. It just it I seems like, like it like, seems I like you would. Have, Do I follow you? <laughs> snakes and bakes seems like you should have a completely different personality. Well, it's because every weekend I bake something for my coworkers. I, I do have in. you on here. Yeah. So every <laughs> every Sunday night, I I post my baking for the coworkers and. You know, didn't you bring Carly something at some show? Uh, not Carly, Melissa. Melissa. Oh, that's right. It was Melissa. You're yeah, right. You're I right. brought Melissa the the marshmallow fluff. That's I feel, right. I feel like Snakes and Bakes would be a great name for Brandon Wheeler as well, but for a different reason. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that, you're, you're that, right. <laughs> that, that, that matches him perfectly, but it's a completely different thing. So, all right, uh, let's go ahead and wrap this up. Uh, April, how can they get a hold of you? You can find me on YouTube or Instagram or Facebook at Designer Exotics. Uh, it's like Designer underscore Exotics on Instagram, I think. Um, or you can add me as a friend on Facebook as April Justine. If you do that, send me a message though, so I know who you are because I got some weirdos sometimes. So, just saying. And follow her so you can see what happens. She's got three clutches of eggs now. Four clutches. I do. One three. of them. One of them, like, is halfway gone, but the other two are great. <laughs> so, uh, for me, you can find me at simply underscore serpents on Instagram, simply serpents on Facebook. Uh, next weekend, so that is the weekend of the 13th, 14th, I will be in Conroe, Texas for my first Herb show in months. I cannot wait. I will have sandboas. I will have a crap they, they're eating. My sandboas are now on their, about to have their third meal. And I'm up to 20 of 25 eating now. So that's awesome. Uh, I will have, they're all normal head annery. Just if you want a cool pet Sambo, come see me. I'll be there in Conroe. If you want to come to a reptile show and you're in Texas, come to Conroe. It's it's the first one in forever. And they're saying that we'll be able to allow like 1,500 people in at a time. So we really shouldn't have any limitations on the number of people in there. Uh, so that's exciting. Uh, anything else? That's about it. Um Nope, that's it. If you want to get a hold of us for the podcast, it would be the Reptile Gumbo Podcast on Instagram and Facebook or the Reptile Gumbo Podcast at gmail.com. Also, send us any ideas you have for the show. If you see any videos, hear anything, again, any questions, shoot us questions and, and we can always try and find somebody as our co host that can help us answer. Like, I knew we were going to have some genetic stuff. So, my first thought was Travis. So, <laughs> it worked It worked out to have a, a geneticist on call. Yeah, so. thank you so much. Yeah, no worries. So I, I will I will give to you the same thing I've given to Joe. I can be your geneticist on call. Just 
hit me and let me know and I'll try and get you as fast as I can. <laughs> and, and Travis, I helped you out. You're on this podcast this week. So that's one less podcast you have to try and listen to. So you can fill your time with another one. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I, can, I can, I can catch up on THP cause I'm like, two months behind on that <laughs> I'm, I'm so i'm so behind i'm horrible I, I started a podcast where we talk about podcasts and i don't talk about podcasts because i don't listen to them anymore because now i've run out of time to listen to podcasts but i do try and get them in here and there um thp is fun i guess justin's all right i mean he does own just some green snakes on stick yeah what? he i i i, I kind of listen to his other reptile talk more than the green snakes on stick stuff if we're being completely honest like I, I I will never want to keep them, but his cyanier, yeah, they sound like little fascinating creatures. And I feel like know, I think Boega fits like right into your wheelhouse of just weird ass snakes. They are weird ass snakes, but they're a little bit too high strung for me, which I know is kind of erotic dealing with Ramphiophis. But they're they're high strung snakes on sticks, which makes them <laughs> a little bit more that I want to deal with. Um, you know, he's he's got the love for bread lie and i gotta tell you i love bread lie you know the fact that he and Je- he and jake both conceded that they are the superior morelia yes. you know I, that's that's where i've been for a long time with them so <laughs> i love mine that's 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 an awesome snake i i got one and i, I love that thing they're, they're so cool yeah and, and that's another one I'm, I'm surprised is not in the hobby more like i think that one's cooler than carpet python like you know the jungles or whatever um just they're naturally red they're naturally have a bright color they get I don't know. That's one I think should be out there more often. And they're almost bulletproof. Yeah. So, all right, let's, let's wrap this up. All right. That is it for our show. Thank you, Travis. It was great. Uh, I'm going to go try to figure out how much I owe in apparently fines for breaking the law. And, and I'll be back next week. Hopefully, (laughs) hopefully from my new reptile room, I will be recording from my new reptile room. That'll be exciting. Super yes. exciting. I'm, I'm ready to get that thing set up. So, well, I, I want pictures too. Uh, I'll post pictures. Once I, once I get it really set up, I'll post pictures of it. So, All right. So. All right. Cool. Thank y'all. Bye. Bye. Bye.